Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours Saturday. It's great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. There you can sign up to receive information about the topics we're covering each week, join the Discord, sign up for Makana, where you can participate in live chat, submit your questions, vote on which questions you'd like us to get to first. If you're not yet in Makana, don't fret. You can still ask questions by going to askofficehours.global or by using the QR code. I love askofficehours.global. It, it's super low friction. It's available 24-7. Whenever a question uh, pops into my head, I grab my phone, go to askofficehours.global, and then it's out of my head and in front of the experts. But let's get on to the show. Our first hour is always general Q&A about media production, and our second hour focuses on something we want to spend a little more time on, and today... It's a whole second hour of Q&A. So we'll go for as long as the questions support. John, let's jump into the first question. Our first question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Why has Kodak not produced camera bodies to capitalize on the popularity of film looks? All right. Uh, go ahead, Chris. So, Andy, I don't think... The, I mean, the body itself doesn't really matter when it comes to the film look. I think you're at a certain point, you're looking at the, the sensor and, and the, the lens. So it's not really the body. Um, but I think that his, Kodak is going to be a very interesting company to analyze in 50 years because Kodak was a very clear leader, you know, 20, 30 years ago in photography. Um, not, not the most high-end photography, but, you know, hugely popular. And in the digital world, uh, not so much. So, when it when you're looking at companies surviving through giant shifts in industries, I think Kodak will be very interesting to look back and say, you know, what did they do wrong and what did they do right? And my fear is that the wrong column is going to be much longer than the right column. All right, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Chris. I mean, I think that there there's actually stories about an, an engineer. I can't remember who it was, but there was a story uh, that, you know, in the nineties, he was like, we need to build digital cameras. And they're like, we're not going to build something that kills off our business. You know, like that. So they just weren't willing, they, they literally buried his, his research and ideas. And that was their, that's what, I mean, they could have easily been the leader in this area and they, they chose to not do it to protect what they had at that moment, you know, and that's, that's always the challenge, you know? And so, um, so I think that that's the, you know, that's what, um, every company has to think about is if, are you protecting the island that you're on or getting to the island that's going to stay above water, you know, and, and they, and it's, it's really easy to get caught up in protecting what you have, you know? So I think that that's the challenge that they, that they have. The problem really with building a film camera is you think you want a film camera. You think, Oh, that's really good, but it's a really like, I'm going to buy a camera and take like three rolls of film. I'm going to realize that if I took those with my iPhone, I would have, you know, I, I would have taken two, 300, you know, images and I can do whatever I want with them. And now I have to scan them and I have to send them out somewhere and I have to, and you got to get, I grew up, I mean, I, 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 my first camera was a Pentax K1000 when I was probably 10 or 11 years old and it was all manual. And I, I shot a lot of film. I developed my own film. I was the, I was the dark, the dark room head, you know, head dark room or whatever for my yearbook. I, you know, I was, I have a lot of experience in, in, in analog film and I would never go back. <laughs> you know, there was a point where I was, I mean, I was shooting film until, until the cameras got to about 6K, you know, so, you know, or, you know, as, as soon as it was 6,000 by 4,000, 
I felt like I'm getting almost the same as I'm getting with film and it's so much, I'm shooting so much of it. The other big turning point for me was when I went to Zimbabwe, I, um, um, I had a film camera and I had a digital camera and I shot all these, all the stuff in Zimbabwe, but trying to, you know, I, I, I've seen almost nothing from the digital, I mean, from the film camera, like it just, it was dealing with the scans and everything else. I have lots of stuff from my digital camera, you know, and I, and for me, that was a big, that was in 2000. Um, and, and that was a, a big turning point for my opinion about, about what, whether, which way to go. Yeah. And I feel like the, what you can do, you know, just in a light room without a ton of effort to get to the kind of look you want and have the ability to make those choices about what you want that frame to look like have, have progressed so much just in the last I 10 mean, or 15 years. It, it's, it, it's staggering. Even with the iPhone, uh, I took pictures of my, my wife and my daughter outside. We were waiting, we were waiting in line for, to go into a ramen place in, at you know, Oakland, California, and just took some random photos with my phone, with my iPhone 15 that had the, you know, portrait mode on or whatever. Holy smokes. Like, <laughs> it was like, this is an incredible photo. And, you know, it's not that I, it's not as good as if I had had a film camera, but the fact that I can refocus it because a little, they were both, one was in, in focus and the other one was out. I refocused it. I changed the focal length. I changed all the other things. It's, and, and, you know, it started off rough and it's still not perfect, but, you know, we're two or three phones away from not being able to tell the difference between, um, a phone on an iPhone and a and a phone from a film camera. Yeah, I feel like Kodak has a lot more value anymore as the the brand recognition. The name of Kodak is more valuable than than whatever the technology is in terms of digital. But uh, sorry, Nigel, you had something to say. I was going to say what you're talking about this this problem of changing one business for another is called the innovators dilemma. Clay, Clay Christensen wrote a great book on the subject. There are plenty of examples. IBM invented most of the optical things and then sold them to Sony because they didn't think its hard drive business would uh, be affected by it. <laughs> but but I will tell you that um, it can happen to all of us at all sizes. And so don't just look at this as big corporations being stupid. Even those this, that run small businesses, don't adopt the technology. Don't, don't manage what's coming around the corner. And so... The, the most important way to survive this, by the way, is you've got to have different metrics for your existing business and your emerging businesses. But even one-man bands can ignore the things that's coming around the corner that finally hits them when it arrives. Awesome. All right, next question. Our next question is from Pedro Vidal in Burbank, California. I was surprised to hear in one of the episodes, a lot of panelists had tinnitus, just like me. Until that point, I had thought audio production can only be a hobby for me. Is this not the case? How do you work around this condition? And go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I, I, I uh, you know, go go to a lot of concerts when you're 21 years old, and uh, no, don't wear ear protection. You're definitely going to get it. Um, and so I've had it most of my life, and I'm still able to do radio. I, I have very acute hearing; like I can hear a lot of things. I just have to. There's just a little tone that's with me all the time. Um, and in some cases, it gets worse. I mean, it'll, it'll suddenly like blank out one ear every once in a while, but that's very rare. You know, like suddenly just one ear just goes off and it's and it's at like 80 decibels. Typically, we I did talk to somebody about it. And it's about 9,000 hertz. So it should, you should find that if you turn on something and you tune it to your tinnitus, you'll find that it's about 9,000 hertz. Um, and um, the uh, uh, but but it doesn't it doesn't seem to I, I seem to be as articulate listening to audio as many audio engineers that I talk to, like about what I can hear and what I can't hear around what they're doing. Uh, I'm not saying I'm, I'm definitely not 
better than any than what we would call golden ears, but I can hear a lot. And I think that's your brain can kind of process stuff. Um, I do get used to it. There is a there are a lot of experiments right now. I've, you know, I've talked to some folks that are challenged with uh, tinnitus and and for some people, it got a lot worse during COVID. They got COVID and that got worse. And they're finding that there's these antidepressant drugs um, that if you take them, they uh, it'll go away. Like it just goes away. But the problem is, is that like I look at all the side effects and I'm like, I'll stick with the tinnitus. <laughs> like like the, you know, the, the the side effects on all of these drugs. I'm just like, I, I think I can, I've learned to manage it. So, so, and you have to keep on taking like smaller and smaller amounts or larger and larger amounts. I mean, once you start getting into having a medication, trying to sort this out, it, you know, it's, you're, you're in a, in a loop that I'm not, not interested in. So I've chosen pretty consciously not to, not to take drugs to try to fix it, but there, there is some research going on to try to solve that problem. And you don't have to, um, you know, get the 50 cent foam earplugs from Rite Aid uh, to protect your ears at a concert. You can invest in, I think Edemotics makes a really nice set of, they will cut about 20 de decibels off the top end and they don't, they don't do as much to color the sound. So you can still enjoy the performance. I'm a guy who loves to go to live shows. Uh, I've been wearing ear protection on almost all of them. Uh, and I think in about 200 shows, I still, in a, in a very quiet room, I'm just sitting there and I just hear this little ringing. And it's, uh, but you know, the, there's no way to reverse it. So go ahead and protect yourself. Uh, next question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alex. All I was going to say is that, that one thing that they have shown uh, is that um, listening to music quietly, because uh, a lot of the tinnitus is a brain function problem as much as it is an ear problem. And so... Listening to music quietly for whatever reason um, has your brain remap a little bit. So, so I think that there's a um, there, there's potentially some some connections to that. And I know that because of what I do, I don't listen to music that much. And I know that it's gotten better. Like you know, like I just don't I don't listen to rock. I don't rock out most of the days. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't have any music going because I'm trying to think about how to do something. So, so I do know that it's gotten, mine's actually gotten better over the, over time. Awesome. All right. Next question. Our next question is from Chris Taylor in Carlsbad, California, who's using the QR code to ask during the panel's display show yesterday, Alex and Chris used handheld iPhones to show their setups. They appeared wireless. How are they connected to your systems? All right. Go ahead, Chris. In an attempt to make Alex feel uneasy about the childish ways that I perform production, um, I'm using the uh, AirPlay feature on the iPhone, and there's a thing called continuity camera. And if I click that thing on, if I turn that thing on, my phone very quickly will take go over and say, hey, look, I'm attached now to an iMac Pro. Now, what I've what I do, my signal path is that um, I do have a lot of things that plug into an ATAM, and the ATAM plugs into the iMac, and then I run the ATAM through OBS, another childish app that Alex doesn't like people using, and uh, and then I have a preset uh, that also ties to my Stream Deck that takes to uh, uh, the, the iPhone. So it shows up as a source when you create a camera app. And so literally from here, here I'll show it like this, I literally just have to push the button and there, oh, wow, that was way too close. Sorry about that. And there I am. So by triggering it, it just turns it on. 
And it's from a workflow standpoint, it's really easy. The downside is that if I leave it on this screen, if I walk within like 40 feet of the computer, this, this uh, screen pops up all the time and I always have to like swipe past it to go and, you know, text my wife or whatever. So sometimes I, I turn it off, but if I think I might be using it, I just leave it on and it, it's ready to go just by pushing that button. Oh, except for now. Anyway, it doesn't always work. All right. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. The, um, uh, uh, I, I yesterday what I actually used was I had a I did have a long cable connected to mine so so it wasn't um, uh, it wasn't it, it wasn't anything special there's just so many cables you couldn't tell there's a big mess of cables there so I couldn't tell that there was another cable that was hidden in there that was going to my phone you could, you could tell. <laughs> anyway um, but but what I do to do that wireless when I want to do a wireless camera um, is an Apple TV um, so you have an Apple TV connected to your switcher. And then you share whatever you want to share to the Apple TV, and then it and then it's, it delivers it. There's a little bit of a delay. There's a couple frames you lose in that process, but it's not it's not significant. And I was amazed. Also, oh, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, uh, all right. The other thing I wanted to say is that the way this continuity camera works is is, and I've shown this before. If I go to um, the continuity camera, you'll notice I'm holding my phone uh, vertically. But when I push the button, I get a 16 by 9. Ooh, that didn't work. And I think that's um, new. I think that's new. And then in when 17. you rotate, it kind of zooms out I a little bit and readjusts yes. the frame. So here I am yeah. rotating the camera 90 degrees. I'm basically doing this. Mm-hmm. And there's the camera that it's looking at. Yeah. It's crazy. I'm done. It's, it's funny. Yesterday, um, I had set up, because I was trying to, besides trying to mildly clean my office, I wanted to, you know, show off the amount of work that I had done building the, the PVC frame. And uh, I actually hooked up the Blackmagic app. When you turn the Blackmagic camera app on your phone to clean HDMI out, it also is clean AirPlay out. So mm-hmm. I had yesterday the Blackmagic camera app AirPlayed to two different Apple TVs that I borrowed one from somewhere else in the house and well, had you, them you were AirPlaying to the two, two TV, Apple TVs at the same time? I had two different inputs on the switcher okay. assigned to two different Apple TVs, two different phones. So uh-huh. two phones, airplane to two Apple TVs plugged into the switcher and then ended up with a wireless setup. And it looked pretty good. The other thing that I was really impressed by was I left the one, I just as, as a test, I set up one of the cameras on Saturday of last week. And I left it running until Friday of the show and never turned it off and it just stayed on the whole time no <laughs> no frame drops no nothing and i was like wow you know what the good good for black magic good for apple or whatever they're doing because that's awesome sam you had something to say yeah well when when i do this then uh, what i normally do is i have an app called lyrics broadcaster on my phone and it sends the srt signal out and uh, so i just uh, pipe that into vmix and then pipe it out to my 810 so that's another no, way you, to do, do it you, do you see any delay there uh, there is a little delay but it's About like half a second uh, 400 milliseconds maybe yeah the, the difference between the apple tv and larynx is that larynx will be at four or five hundred milliseconds and the apple tv will be probably at 60 you know like so it's it's a much lower but you're right and what larynx is really good at is going somewhere else like so you're doing it in your house but that 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 little larynx broadcaster can Send it to Chris. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So that's I've sent really it cool. up to Amazon and the cloud, yeah. AWS too. 
Yeah, it's and, really and it's really useful. To some yeah. degree, I'm getting away with lip sync because none of my angles showed my face. So unless I was, you know, gesturing, right. which I do, um, but unless I was really excited, you you know, you got it. Yeah. It was yeah. totally <laughs> awesome. Next question. Our next question is from Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri. He asks. Famously, Van Halen's writer included M&Ms with no brown ones. This was to test attention to detail without mentioning who. Have you dealt with challenging demands from artists? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, we haven't had any at the level of the M&Ms. The M&Ms, for those of you listening, the, I think it was brown M&Ms. I, I believe it was no brown M&Ms in the, uh, in the Van Halen um, uh, tour rider. Somewhere in the middle of it, it just said there can be, they want a bowl of M&Ms and there can be no brown M&Ms in there, which takes a little bit of work. You'd have to hire some intern to like take out all the brown M&Ms. And then if you, if you didn't do that, they would just tear the whole system apart and they'd always find something wrong. And, and what it, what it really comes down to is they wanted to know whether the person reading the rider was paying attention to what they needed. And, and so it, it always sounds like they're being prima donnas, but really what they were trying to do is make sure that they actually read the rider. You know, and that was just a really easy way for the band to know if they had read the writer is they just look down at the at the M and M jar, <laughs> see if there is one. If there wasn't one, they're really worried. And if there aren't, if there's still brown M and Ms, then they're somewhat worried. Of course, it became the thing that to handle. You know, like you you knew it, but but the the interesting thing is they'd always find they'd they'd always find technical problems in the stage if that happened. So if there were brown M and Ms, you know, in the thing, there was. Uh, there was going to be technical problems. And, and it is, you know, the hard part with tours is that they are, uh, they are a battle of details, like the, the, the logistics. I was sitting there talking to someone who uh, worked on a bunch of big tours and they were talking about all the lights, you know, that were going across the top of a, you know, 42 foot wide stage. But the thing that they, they were most proud of was not the lighting, was the fact that it folded into two, uh, uh, semis, <laughs> you know, like all of these lights will go cleanly into two semis that are airtight, you know, like they're just, that, that's what the lights do, you know? And, and so everything about, uh, concerts, because you're, you're finishing one day, getting in a truck and oftentimes loading in the next day somewhere else. I mean, someone's driving all night to get there so that the next crew is putting that together. And, and it doesn't take very much. You look at the little thing, you, the, the, what's amazing is not when people have problems like Beyonce lost audio for her in her concert or whatever, or something goes wrong. It's the fact that that doesn't happen all the time. You know, like it is just, a, it is an amazing feat that um, mostly Tate and, and the folks that they hire, you know, that they, it's just an amazing feat for them to do what they do, you know, um, to have it all work, to turn it on every day. And, the, and these shows have gotten so complicated. Like, the, I mean, these, the, the, between the lighting controls and the audio pipelines and the, you know, everything else, it's just, there's a behind the scenes on the audio for Metallica. If you want to get a sense of what it's like, it is, I mean, it's intense, you know, of all you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of channels and, and anyway, it's just, it's just an amazing, amazing thing to watch. Um, and so, so that was why that, and back then it was nothing compared to what it is now. Um, the, what I will say is that we work with a lot of artists and, you know, I used to do um, speaker support for seminars. So my job was to, like literally we'd have a, someone running a, you know, running something for a weekend. My job was to make sure that they stayed in a state of presence. Like that's, that's what, my, you know, and so they had all kinds of crazy requests all the time. You know, I need you to go do this. I need you to go because the the goal was is that they're not worried about anything. <laughs> like like their their job is to lead. 
you know, lead and be present. And my job is to make sure the tea is perfect and the everything's in the right place. And when they and and um, you know, when they when they sit down for every meal, that everything just feels like it's in, it's under control. You know, so that they can continue to do what they do. You know, and the thing is, is that that is, um, and I really learned over time that that's really that was some of the best training I ever had. By the way, um, was because. Uh, I did that a lot and I loved it because it was like this, you just, you're just paying attention to one person you know, and just making sure that they get absolutely everything that they need. And you sit there and just watch them all day. Like that's my own job. And sit there and just watch them all day. And if, if they, if they had like a little like concern on their, on their eyebrow, I would look at everything around <laughs> like, 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 what isn't working there? You know, and, and, and you try to iron it out. Um, and that made us really good at doing VIP meetings. I mean, VIPs, cause they, a lot of times they won't ask for things. They'll just notice things that are off. But it's a really powerful skill is to is to when you're dealing with talent and even people who aren't prima donnas, that's the people you really want to serve because they're more fun to serve. But also, um, you know, they all need it. Like if someone's speaking in front of a lot of people, like we get taken care of, we get very, we're very pampered here. Like we get in and there's a crew that that, that says hi to us and they check these things and they make this and we do a little thing and, you know, most most online shows don't have that, <laughs> you know, and, it, and it, but it, it helps us. It, it is a it is a pattern that helps us get into a state that we're ready to have the conversation. Go ahead, Chris. I got to say, as if I were a promoter and I w- was responsible for the M&M thing, <clears throat> I would come up with so many different ways to play on that. Like I'd, I'd have a giant bowl of everything but the M&M's. And then another bowl of all brown M&Ms, or I'd have a bowl of just brown M&Ms, or I'd have eight different bowls, eight different interns standing in a line up to the green room. One's red, one's green, one's brown. What, you know, I would just have fun with that thing forever. Like at every ahead, show. Alex. And then they, 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 would, they would decide that you were just, you know, some, someone was going to give them a lot of, lot of trouble. Like, you know, like, like that's what they would decide, like, like what they, what they if wanted. If they don't see the comedy in it, then that's fine. <laughs> I, I don't care. The hard part for bands is that, is that they, they do this, they, they're trying to find homeostasis, you know, and, and they, and they're, they're doing this every single day. When you see someone on a tour, you know, we always talk about the first five shows, they are just apoplectic. Nothing's working to that. I mean, it may not, you may look fine to you, but there's things aren't working. They're, they're, they're ringing the system out. And then a lot of that's gotten better since, since, you know, rock lit, came up and they'd spend more time rehearsing and everything else. But they, but they still, um, you know, they, they, uh, uh, they still are really frustrated. And then there's this golden time between about, about five and 15 shows. And, and I used to, so my job used to be drive bands around town, get interviews and stuff like that. So you could always tell where they were in this in this zone. There's this golden time where they're just on cloud nine between, you know, five and t- 15 or so, you know, plus or minus a couple. They just loved it. Like they have all these people and they're singing and everything's working and everything else. And then there was this like drop off from about 15 or 20 shows down to the 55 or 60 that they had on their tour. There was just this, you just, they're just getting weathered. <laughs> like, like, like they're just, like they're just, they're just, and, and, and you get somebody on like tw- on night 40 or night 45 and they just come off stage and just sit like, you know, like they're just the, 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 the fun is gone <laughs> for them. And, and, um, and, and I think that that's the, uh, so, you know, a lot of times what we were trying to do when we worked on that is, is build that bubble around them so that they're not, it's not exhausting. You know, like it's, it's, you, you try to save as much energy as they can so they can do what they're paid to do. And go ahead, Nigel. 
I was just going to point out the M&M store now sells M&Ms by the individual colors. So this isn't <laughs> the sort of problem it used to be. So I don't know why we're still talking about this. <laughs> Go ahead, John. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> it's a great, also a great example of what's called a leading indicator, which is a measure in the production process that will immediately tell you if something's right or wrong. And it makes me wonder if Van Halen leaked this story out to see how many people would get the M&Ms right, but missed some other trigger that they had put in their writer. Yeah, and um, the only other thing that I'll add to this is if you're not Van Halen, don't make a really particular writer. Uh, it makes people not want to work with you. It's like there's an inverse, there's a, there's a direct correlation to how much draw you have and how much you matter to the venue and how much you're allowed to ask for things. You know, just be easy to work with if you're new at this. The, the um uh there's a there's a concept that we and this is that this is a general lesson is understand where you are in the food chain like just under it is the most important thing when you're doing business is am i you know and, and not where you want to be and not where you think you are and not where you aspire to be but know where you actually are and sometimes you're you are higher in the food chain than you think you are some you know some people have a low self esteem and they 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 don't want to they think that they're lower than they are and some most people have a problem thinking that they're higher in the food chain than they are they think they're a shark they're not quite a shark yet um and they act like a shark and then they you know they they run up to a shark and then the shark eats them and so the um and so the uh so the the, the thing is is that understanding where you are. And the hardest part is beginning bands, as an example, they're just happy to be there. They're just, they're really great to like hang out with. Everything's great. The The bands that have just broken are the hardest ones to deal with because they're just now, they've got all this stuff and everything like, you know, and then, and then when they get to be big bands, they just have a lot of infrastructure. <laughs> you know, and So, so like, like when we do, like a lot of times we've had things with mixers, you know, mixers is a, is a big deal because they're music. The little bands are like, hey, whatever you want to do. And the, and the big bands bring in their own, you know, they have their own crew that does that. And the middle bands have just, a, they, they have a lot of particular things that they want. <laughs> you know? And, it's, and it's, it just becomes hard to, hard to figure out exactly how you're going to, you know, manage, you know, manage those things. But it is important to, um, I mean, I've had some artists that were, you know, really big artists that just felt like they were just hanging out with you. You know, they, 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 they didn't get caught up in it. Um, and I think that that is, uh, it, it is really important. The more you can do that, the longer you can hang on to that, the better. Awesome. Next question. Our next question is from Femi Palmer in London, who used the QR code to ask, M1 MacBook Pro is no longer seeing DeckLink Duo cards in Sonnet Enclosure. This may have been caused by an update. Getting this from desktop video application, no desktop video de device detected. Femi's reinstalled the app and changed the card already. Any suggestions? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I'm guessing you went to Sonoma when you said update. So, um, you know, jumping from one OS to the other is usually when hardware devices stop working. And it's why a lot of us wait until February. <laughs> so, so, you know, to, to update to Sonoma. So um, I, I think that I don't know if it's all of the Sonnet boxes that are like that. It's probably some kind of ex extension conflict. Um, the one thing that you'd want to do is probably find another Mac that has got a different OS um, or maybe even the same one. Uh, I mean, the place that I would look is you're trying to, with all of these things, you're trying to reduce variables. So find another Mac that's back in Ventura, connect the, the enclosure, see if it shows up. That'll tell you whether it's the card or the enclosure. If the card and the enclosure show up on another Mac, then you know you're good. 
like you know that that's you know that's those things are operational now you know it's in the mac then update that mac to whatever your current version is and see if it works and if it stops working then you know it's the update <laughs> so so you know but the, the key is reduce the number of variables that you're trying to solve at, at any given time and you'll you'll figure out what it is but that's what the first thing i would do is plug that into another mac and see if it shows up and then and then then start you know that has the last operating system that i that i knew was working then update that mac and those would be the the steps that i would probably take to make that work one thing that i do that people probably think i'm crazy but that's okay uh, I'll actually, because APFS has made it so easy to resize your hard drive partitions, if I'm in the middle of a project and something's mission critical, I'll actually make a new partition on the same exact machine and install Sonoma on that before I upgrade my production machine. Uh, or sometimes I just migrate between the two partitions because then it's kind of like a clean install just as a as a test. Yep. Uh, just because that makes sure that you know, this exact piece of hardware works before you go and, uh, you know, back yourself down a hallway you can't get out of. Um, while we're here, just a quick reminder, uh, this show runs on your questions, so feel free to submit them in Makana, or you can use uh, the QR code and askofficehours.global. Uh, you can get to that, and you can scan the QR code, direct the browser over to the website. I encourage everyone, though, get signed up for Makana. Besides getting into chat with other producers, you can vote on questions, and then we can build the show around your level of interest. Uh, and uh, with that, why don't we uh, just keep on going on to the next question? Our next question is from Larry Avery in San Dimas, California, who also used the QR code to ask, assuming Premiere Pro is your primary NLE, under what circumstance would you incorporate DaVinci Resolve into that workflow? Perhaps color grading? Others? Thanks. Go ahead, Chris. Hey, Larry, if you see Bill and Ted, tell me I said hi. Um, I was just talking with Charles Klein just yesterday. By the way, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Sandy Miss Count. Hi. Um, I was just talking to Charles about uh, color stuff yesterday, our friend Charles Klein. And he was saying that, um, amazingly, still 2023, and uh, the handshake between Premiere and Resolve, which he does a lot. He has a lot of people will edit in Premiere and ask him to color in Resolve is still problematic. It still has problematic gamma shifts. And my recommendation would be if you want to use Resolve's color tools, I would edit and resolve. Uh, if you want to use uh, Premiere's... Speed grade. Whatever. Whatever it is in the Adobe world that you're attracted to, maybe it's After Effects or the round tripping or whatever... I would recommend you stay in in the Adobe world. Now, it can be done, and but Charles is saying that quite often he has clients that have already bought off on all of the finessing and really minute finessing that he's done in Resolve, and then he gives it back to the editors, and they have to, like, diddle it and go back and forth and compare their repaired... Uh, uh, color to Charles's finessed color. And and this really goes to the thing I always say, you don't want to fix a problem, you want to solve a problem. And if you're regrading after you've had something graded, you're you're fixing a problem, you're not solving it. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I I I don't I hate going back and forth and and, and for with anything. Like, I, I just don't like going back and forth. I think the main reason to use Premiere is because you're using After Effects. Like, you know, like you're, you know, and so Premiere is a great way to do that. I think that 
you know, I'm not going to make any friends at Adobe. I just think I don't understand how Premiere fits into the current pipelines. You know, like I don't understand why it's there. Like Final Cut, I totally understand why it's there. It's a lot faster. It's a lot faster to get everything done in Final Cut than it is everywhere else. And when I need to do something quickly, I open it up in Final Cut. As soon as I say this is a precision project, then I move to Resolve. Like, you know, like I don't, like I don't, like this is, I need, I need precision control over my audio or video or I need to have, you know, these things. But that, and I think that that's the power that Resolve has is that it is a, um, it's not done yet, but it's getting there. Like it is really, as you look at these updates, like having all the audio there and all the video there and all the, and they're just slowly tying these all together into a way that, you know, they don't compete head to head with everything yet. But like the, the jump in speed between, um, Final Cut and Resolve is like pulling the parking brake at 55 miles an hour. <laughs> like, you know, like, so the, you know, like, so that's the, that's the hard part with it when you go to, but the, but the change in workflow from Premiere to Resolve is like shifting from third to fourth gear, like or or fourth to third gear. You're like, it's not like the two of them work very similarly in that case. You know, they're very layer oriented. There's a lot of things that are there. You have to learn a couple of new keystrokes. So the, the thing that I don't understand is, is, you know, how someone jumped at this point, they jump into Premiere because everyone else is using Premiere. But I don't think that it's a, I, you know, Resolve, I think is a superior package to Premiere at this point. Um, and so, uh, and people who use Avid just use Avid, right? Like, cause they, that's the, the pipeline that's built into what they're doing. Um, but, but the, um, so when I, when you, what, what I do when I talk to people from Premiere, it's like, why are you doing that? Like, if you're already in Premiere, why don't you just go to Resolve, you know, and, and just do everything there? Because I don't think there's a lot in Premiere that Resolve doesn't have. And Resolve has an enormous number of things. And the fact that I can send Charles a derp and have him just do the stuff and send me back a file that just, just relinks is super useful. Like it's, it's, it, you know, it's super useful to not have, um, a, uh, you know, not have to like try to figure out how we're going to get in and out of an app, you know, and it's still challenging, you know, to have somebody else work on your stuff. You got to make sure in the same version, you have to, you know, things make sure, you know, there's a lot of things that can, that can still go wrong, but, um, it is, uh, especially if you're working with a colorist, I just feel like, and, and I think that more and more people are doing that, you know, we're seeing resolve from a hot, you know, high end production. We're seeing resolve showing up more and more often. And the hard part that, that premiere has is that, a lot of people are finishing in Resolve. And so the issue is, is that this trouble that happens here means that there's more, there becomes more and more pressure to just just edit the thing in Resolve. And so I don't think it's quite there yet. I think it's still a little clunky here and there. And so I think that they, but they have more, you know, they have a lot of engineers working on it. So I, I, if you look at just the, the frequency of the updates and the number of update, uh, number of new fixes and, and new features every update, it's, it's pretty impressive. And the other thing that I'll mention is if you are at the level of just getting started and you're with something that's indie and you're playing with the idea of starting to do some color correction in Resolve and the idea of picture lock is pretty loose, export it with as much handles as you can allow, as space allows for. Because then when the editor on the other side says, well, I really want to change, I want to make this a fade instead of a cut or I want to move this around a little bit, they have a little bit of... You know, the time code is still going to keep everything in sync, but they're going to have a little bit of uh, of choices still when they aren't quite as picture locked as they thought they were. Uh, go ahead, Chris. A couple things. Number one, pick, picture lock is a myth. Number two, I'd like to point out that I answered this question without bringing up Final Cut at all. I just want to say that. <laughs> and number three, I want to Gold clarify, star. Alex, you said if you're editing in Final Cut, and you switch to resolve, it's like pulling on the parking brake. I mean, what you're saying is it's so much slower. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you said, but moving from Premiere to Resolve is like moving from fourth gear to third gear. Or, or or fourth, I don't know. I mean, it's just like sh- shifting gears. It's like it's like not a it, it's moving one downshifting or upshifting. I don't think it. I think it's downshifting probably. So I think Resolve is probably the slowest editor out there. I mean, it's just the, the most. You know, you, I don't think that it's certainly cumbersome to get started. It's really cumbersome to get started, and you really have to get it right. You have to get your project settings yeah. right. You have to yeah. get like it's a it's it's a grown up. It's a grown-up editor. <laughs> like, like it, it takes an adult to use it and understand what you're, you're really clicking into on. into this grown-up child thing lately. Yeah, yeah, it's bothersome. Yeah, exactly. uh, I also want to say <laughs> that uh, um, if, you, if you do need to go to Resolve for Color, and yes, you probably should have started there, uh, try not to go back. But, but, but this, the gamma shift thing is, is, is a real problem. And that's why I. That's why I. Yeah, you definitely to, to keep everything in in Final Cut. Yeah, I'm and, fine. And, and also, once you send it to Resolve, if you're going to take it from Final Cut or Premiere, once you send it to Resolve, it's never. I agree with Chris. It should never go back. Like it's just like you've now pushed it to color. And it, the good news is it has a bunch of tools that let you keep on editing if you if you want to tweak a couple things and you've got all those tools in there. Uh, but you shouldn't. I wouldn't round trip it at this point. Round tripping is a nightmare. Yeah. Really, it's, it's the difference between are you doing the creative process of actually choosing, you know, what frames am I going to cut where versus a finishing tool. And I, to me, Resolve is really a finishing tool more than, you know, it's what well, it's... Well, it's... And again, I think that the, they're they're aspirationally going towards more than that. And I think that they're... When you have the number of engineers they have working on it, which the rumor is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of people working on it, their on aspirations Premier. may turn into reality. What? Uh, hundreds and hundreds on Premiere? No, 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 on Resolve. Resolve, oh, okay. Yeah, no, Resolve has like, I mean, the rumor is Resolve has like five to six times as many engineers as Premiere and a lot more than Final Cut. Um, you know, they have the, they have just so many people working on it is the, right. is the thing. And, and, and they're basically working on five or six, to be fair, they're working on five or six apps at the same time. Fairlight is its own app that just happens to be a tab and the color is its own app that happens to be a tab and the editor, you know, so there's, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, Fusion is its own app that happens to be a tab inside of inside it. So, so when you say there's a lot of engineers, there's a lot of engineers working on different tabs that are in there, and you're, you're going into their world when they go into it. So, but it's like, but it's a, it's a, it's a beast, you know. And, and I, I will do say find that it a little challenging when you're working in Resolve and you move from tab to tab. Sometimes the the design language and the interface feels like a pretty jarring switch. And you're like, hold on, I just like I don't have a gut feeling for. I've lived in color for the last six months. I don't know what where everything is on this screen. They're getting right. better, but I still don't understand the cut page. Like, like I, I always go, like I, I look at it, I go, okay, cut page. Which one's <laughs> I'm like the cut page is like we were trying to be easy and fast, and and I'm kind of like, uh, okay, and it's it's like I think the cut page is mostly for assemblies, and you know you just the, put it put together an assembly, but I just I'm just like I just rather just I just go straight into the edit page. The cut page was really pushed for by Grant. I also yeah. think I I think the premiere to borrow one of our first questions. I think one day premiere may be looked at as the Kodak of video editors, desperately holding on to the past. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. It, 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 yeah, and I think that the the hard part is is that it what becomes difficult is that as the more and more of the market goes out into folks that are not getting paid by by the hour. They get pretty touchy about like being able to do everything in in what they're doing. Like Final Cut actually does really well. And like when I work with social media folks, a lot of folks are using Final Cut because they don't get paid by the hour. They get they want to get it done quickly, um, and they don't need to make it. You know, they don't need to color it 
you know, at that level. Because um, you know, I do think Final Cut, that's one of the big weak points is that the color controls are, I mean, they're they're not like when you used to resolve. They're not that. Um, and they, they, they could put spend more energy there. Um, it was the, years before they even got wheels. It was just those weird little, the bars. Which are powerful. It's just, it's just the interfaces. It's just but the wheels are there now. Been, you know, if you were using <laughs> Apple Color on Final <laughs> Cut 7, that's, it's not natural. That's, that's the dumbest thing, CJ. You said it took years to have it, but they have it. They have it, the color it, wheels. It, no, it, I agree, and that's what I use now when I'm in when I need something fast in Final Cut. But it's just it was I just remember it being really awkward. For me, it's more just managing color, like you know, like the managing of color in Final Cut is just really basic, you know. And so, because I do HDR work, so so I, I I worry about like an HDR in Final Cut is not an option, really. Um, you know, like and and it, because they just don't they they can do it, but they can't do it very well. So um so the uh, and neither does Premiere. Like I think if you're doing HDR work, you're in. You're in Resolve, or and if you're not, if you're doing HDR work and you're not in Resolve, you're crazy, <laughs> like you know, like so, um, you know. So the uh, um, anyway, so there you go. Yeah, let's next question. Jeffrey Powers asked the next question from the a QR code. What's the best way to wrap an optical HDMI cable? Do you try to train it over or under? And go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, well, the most important thing with the uh, optical HDMI cables is that you don't uh, break it. You don't uh, bend it uh, too sharply over uh, edge or something. So uh, that uh, you have to be, uh, what I normally do is have someone uh, watch the cable while I'm winding it up. I like the spools that you wind them up on, um, but you can also do uh, over under, but uh, just be careful to not break the cable. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I mean, in most of these cables, the Corning ones at least are pretty robust. They're arguably as robust as a lot of the regular copper cables. Um, but they, um, uh, but yeah, if, if you're, I, I agree with Samuel. Most of the time when we have long, long runs of 500 feet or 1,000 feet of optical, and this isn't necessarily optical HDMI, but optical, um, we're, roll, we're putting them on, on a roll, you know, with a crank. <laughs> we're walking back up and we're walking through it. When we do when we do over under, of course, you know we do we definitely. I mean, I train everybody to do it. I have. I was trying to find a picture before this. But I was teaching my kids when they were like ten. Like, here, here's how you roll cables. But you know, it's just a matter of telling people that you're going to have your hand over, and the next one you're going to pull it under, and that's it. Like you know, and, and then you sit there and just just repeat. Um, and it is. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's a skill they should teach in elementary school because <laughs> it's good for everything uh, to make sure that that all works. It was funny. I I, I my uncle. Uh, who's you know much much older than I? I was in uh, Louisville, um, and uh, and he was and he happened to live there, and so I had him work on a show with me. You know, just it would be fun to work with my uncle because he had taught me how to do photography and everything else, and and so it was really fun. And and I told him, uh, do you know how to do over under on the on the um, on the on the cables? And he's like, uh, no, I've not, I mean I haven't heard of it before. And I and I said and I said, well, it's like this. And he goes, oh, you just you mean you're just coiling rope. And I was like, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> he came from a farm, from a, from a horse farm. He's like, that's how you coil the rope, you know, so that you can, because really it, it's for coiling the rope so you can throw it at a at a cattle while it's running. It's the only way to make it work. Go ahead, Chris. There was a, there was a chief engineer I worked with uh, years ago, and he told the story about when he, his first job in the first studio he worked at, um, after getting out of school, he, uh, the, the engineer at that place set, tested him and he couldn't, he didn't know how to wrap a cable and he grabbed a hundred foot BNC and he goes, follow me. And he took him out in the back parking lot and he took one into the cable and he threw it out and it went 
all 100 feet laid out flat in the parking lot. And then he went and handed it to him. He says, don't ever set foot in my studio again until you can do that. And he when said he, he, was, in the, uh, he we, was in the parking we, lot all day. And all the other workers were coming out going, oh, you're working on the cable project. Yeah, good luck with that. And they turned around and they walked back in. It took them all day to figure out how to do it. That was one of the uh, when when we were hiring uh, when I worked at the I had a short stint at the Tribune in the video department there and our for the first day was like wrap an XLR they, they, that was part of the interview wrap an XLR we want to just 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 get an idea of where you're at um, go ahead Alex yeah I I, I I have this dream of doing the um, at some point we'll we'll do it we we kept we've been talking about it for a decade which is to do the production Olympics. You know, like, you know, and so it's, it is like, so for cable, you know, it's like the 50, <laughs> the 50 foot cable or the 100 foot cable, you know, like it's like the 50 foot sprint, you know, like 50 foot cable and you have to wrap it up and then you get, but you get marked for like how, how clean it looks, you know, and your form. And then of course you have to throw it back out again to make sure that that's, that's part of the check. And um, I just think that that would be a, I think, but there's all kinds of things like that. That would be really fun to do a, a production Olympics. Yeah. Awesome. I'm ready for it. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida asks, what is your favorite camera and lens for street photography? Why? Go ahead, Nigel. So, uh, and later I'll talk about my other camera, but the answer is my iPhone because it's the one I always have on me. And I used to have a small uh, little a Fujifilm camera, which was like a pocket one-shot type camera. But I never had it on me when I wanted to do my street photography. I always had my iPhone. And I think the iPhone, the latest one with the five times optical, is really my answer to that question. The other part uh, that I always like about the, well, besides the adage of the best camera in the world is the one that's with you, is um, if it wasn't an iPhone, I would want to make sure that it had GPS. Because at some point when you amass, you know, tens, of thousands of photos, you never remember when you took the photo. You always remember where you took the photo. And now you can just look at it on a map. It's like, boom. It's like, you're, uh, that's my, my party trick at a business meeting is that I can always pull up exactly the photo that somebody's talking about before they think they want to show it. And I'm just like, oh, look, and here it is. Um, go ahead, Alex. No, exactly. I mean, the, the, I, I, 99% of the photos I take at this point are all on my iPhone. And and I have to say, it's one of the reasons I keep on updating. I mean, I think that's the thing is that I keep on wanting a better camera. And and I and I, what's interesting about it is, is that when we watched the, the last thing, it's gotten to the point where if Apple said, I mean, if you watched Apple's stream, I bet you that as soon as they gave you the camera data, everybody stops, you know, like most people will stop watching. That's why they put it right at the very end of their keynote. It's because all we want to know is, what is the what have you done to the camera so that it's a little bit better than the last one? Um, and I think that that is so. To me, the iPhone has become for me, and, and I know people using Samsung phones that are doing at least as good as the iPhone. So it's not. It's just that the phone is the best one. And and to what CJ said, I I'm so frustrated by having photos that don't have GPS. Like and and I know people say, well, you can get a GPS for your phone and da 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 da. But being able to pull something out that just happens to grab that data, you know, on the way through, wow just golden, you know, and, and it's so easy to find lots of things. Go ahead, Chris. I saw a great uh, little thing on Instagram last night, Alex, where there was a celebrity uh, meet and greet, you know, step and repeat, and the celebs were shaking hands and people were handing them their iPhone, their phones to like, could you take a selfie with me? So they hand, somebody had a wide shot 
like from behind. And you could see that this person handed the phone to the celebrity uh, in camera mode. And the person turned around to do the selfie and they hit the button, but it wasn't an iPhone. It was an Android. And so the button they hit went back to their lock screen. And then the, the celebrity hands the phone back. They didn't take a picture. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, you did it wrong. Could, could, here to hit, and could you hit this button here? And they did it a second time. Boom. It just exited the camera and went to the lock screen. Because the phone, the buttons are different on that particular phone. Every celebrity is using an iPhone. And they said, don't ever hand your phone to a celebrity if you're using an Android. Yeah, the other thing for for street photography that I used to when I was doing a study abroad and I was in Florence or something, and I was trying to get these beautiful pictures on my cheapo kit lens with like my Canon 6D. No, it wasn't even a, it was a 60D, or it might have been a, a it wasn't a T2I, but it was something along those lines. Um, eventually, I, I had like a 70 to 200 millimeter cheapo plastic lens that. Uh, I wanted the bokeh and I kept on like, hey, how far can I zoom in on this lens just to, to get like that more arty photo? The, the other thing that I'll say is regardless of what camera that you choose to use, you've got to think about what's the image that I'm trying to create and what, um, what look and what feel and what story am I trying to tell? And really that's going to, besides all of this stuff, all of this gear stuff, the gear is great. You can hand a really nice camera to someone who's not very skilled and take a pretty picture, but uh, it's it's what are you trying to to tell with that picture, and how do you want it to look? And then, and sometimes the limitations of the camera that you're using is what spars, uh, sparks that creativity uh, for you. Uh, Alex, you had some something to add? Yeah, all I was going to say is that like when it's, it's these kind of photos. This is what I shot last weekend. You know, if you look at my, we're sitting there waiting for. You know, like that's a that's a shot from an iPhone at like dark. Like it is not, you know, and the and the and where this is all kind of gotten at this point, you know, and and it's just <laughs> speed, you know. Then they're going, but these are all iPhone photos, you know, and that depth of field and everything else has just really, you know, changed the way that I look at it. And that's it's not just that it's a portrait; it's that it's shooting a very dark. Like that's the kind of the, the how how dark that was was. I would think twice about shooting that with a digital camera. And and nowadays you don't think about it at all. And the computational photography has just become amazing. Awesome. Next question. Our next question is from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Using uh, what are the 35 millimeter field of view equivalent focal ranges for the iPhone camera lenses? Go ahead, Alex. I think they put them on there now. So they, you know, I think it's a 24 millimeter, um, I want to say a, I think it's 120, 24, and I think 14 or something like that. Let me let me see if I can find that really quickly. The where you the see one it is, is 24, the two is 48, the five is 120. So the 35 would be like one and two thirds. Just when you so the way that you find this, by the way, uh, Andy, is when you're in the iPhone and you see the one X, two X, five X buttons, you'll actually scroll like scroll your finger up and down, and then that will give you the. Uh, that will give you the, the millimeter right next to the number. Yeah, because, oh, right, yeah, because I have 13, yeah, 13, 24, 120 on my, on my 15. And, and so, and, and by the way, when you select the lens on the um, Black Magic camera, it just pops up as the millimeters. You know, same thing. You just, you just select, select that, that, lens, that lens length. And so, yeah. 
Excellent. Go ahead. Uh, next question. Funsak Dorji in Dharamshala, India, asks, Hi, panelists. We've decided to buy an FX30 for recording events, interviews, and panel discussions. Please suggest a lens which doesn't break the bank. Go ahead, Samuel. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I think the FX30 is a good choice. It's APS-C camera, so you can use this, uh, the APS-C lenses. Uh, what I use, I don't have FX30, but I have this here, uh, the uh, several uh, a, uh, Sony APS-C uh, uh, cameras. And what I use is the uh, the uh, 18-105 to F4 power zoom. Uh, so it's a power zoom uh, lens, and it's got a constant amperature, uh, so it won't get darker when you... When you zoom in, it's and you can also use a remote control to to remote the control uh, wirelessly. You can even connect it to the DJI and use it as a PTZ and control the zoom through the DJI gimbal. Uh, so I, I have three of these lenses and I'm very happy with them. Uh, if you want something with a little bit faster lens, then you can get like a Sigma 18 to 50 millimeters. It's uh, uh, so that's also a very popular lens, and I have prime lenses. I have several Sigma lenses, like the uh, the uh, thirty millimeter f one point four that I'm using right now. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I went a slightly different way. I have the uh, a seven four because I wanted a more of a still camera, but it still do video for it. And I put the twenty four to one hundred five on mine, and I find that very flexible. the The only downside, by the way, of the twenty four to one hundred five is most camera bags that you, I mean, I don't mean camera backpacks, but like cover over, don't fit the uh, the 105, they fit the 70, so beware of that. The other thing I would tell you is uh, Sigma and Tamron make great lenses. So we have a tendency to, uh, if you've got all the money in the world, go Sony. But I wanted a really, really good uh, looking uh, lens. So I got the 35mm uh, f1.4. That is a fabulous Sigma lens. So don't don't worry about going Sigma, Tamron. Some of those lenses are great. Yeah, and that's a great point about Sigma. I'm on a Sigma lens right now that's a 1.8 uh, zoom lens. And first of all, it was cool that they did a zoom lens that was a 1.8. But besides that, I've been super happy. i just thrilled with the way that the picture looks. The only thing that uh, I wanted to add, specifically you mentioned interviews, and you've got to remember that the the focal length of your lens is going to have an effect on the way that the shape of the face looks. So in general, uh, a little bit longer of a lens is going to have a little more flattering look uh, to your subject. Again, though, you're going to be dealing with physical space because you have to back up the camera uh, if you want to go ahead and, and use that longer length lens. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, the, the, our, our kind of, the ones that we put on our cameras, whether they're, you know, Sony's or Canon's or many other cameras, uh, Blackmagic's, so there's a 24 to 70. So finding a 24 to 70 lens is something that, you know, I have lots and lots of different 24 70s for lots of different cameras. And Sony makes one, of course, um, I think it's about $1,100. It, I will say that this is what you spend money on, in my opinion. Like you're going to change, you may decide that the FX30 isn't what you want. You want to go up to something else or down to say you want to go up to FX3s or you want to go you know, somewhere else. I tend to always buy full frame lenses because I'm afraid that I'm going to go to a full frame camera. And I always want to know that I can just move the lenses over because the lenses is where you're really putting a lot of money. And so um, we shoot most of, we were, we've been able to shoot most events. You know, the, the, the ones that we get for our cameras, not all of them, but we usually have sets of them that we kind of pay attention to are the 16 to 35, the 25, 24 to 70. 
and then the the 70 to 200 and then a 100 to 400 and I, i'm saying those in canon lenses because i don't have all of those for my sony's um but those are that means that i have with a doubler i have a lot of range you know like i i can do you know like those four lenses will do almost anything i need to do they're not as good as primes they're not as straight you know they're not going to be as as clean as primes but they're they're really it's a solid solution for many things but usually every camera has a 24 to 70. And then we have this kind of a couple of these other ranges of, of lenses that we use. Um, but I would say that it's worth trying to spend money on the lens. If you're going to spend money on an FX30, which is now $500 less, which is great, uh, at least in the United States. Um, the, but I would really look at if, if you said I have to get one lens for all these cameras, it has to be the same lens. I would probably get the 24 to 70s, I may be tempted to get a 7200 or a 100 to 400 for one of the cameras um, so that I have that long throw and then I have a lot of flexibility on the on the other lenses. Yeah, I'm always amazed when I look at how many times I've bought a new camera body, but that, you know, some of those lenses that I bought in 2009 are still just, well, man, they look great. Uh, yeah, and, ahead, and Chris? Oh, oh, sorry. One, one other thing that, they, uh, that the, the ones that we use for the FR7s are the 28 to one. 35s is that right it's a i think it's a 28 to, or i think it's a 28 to 130 or what 28 to 135 um those are you know killer ones and we use those because that's the longest comfortable throw with with a with a powered zoom that we can use on the fr7s all right go ahead chris the phrase i've heard that i like is you date your cameras and you marry your lenses if you buy good glass it will last for several cameras All right, uh, let's go ahead. Next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada is looking for a reasonably priced multi-channel audio to SDI embedder. AES or Dante would be preferred. All right, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, there, there is a, um, uh, if you're only looking for 3G, so you're not looking for 4K, uh, I think Sonifex is the one that makes the one that I think a lot of, that I've seen the most. I don't own one of these, um, but it's a Sonifex. I think it's a DIO 10 um, Dante to 3G, and it's a. I thought there was there was an embedder. Yeah, there's a. Uh, it's embedder D embedder, so it'll do 16 channels on. You know, it'll drop. You can just do Dante to it. In some of the pipelines that we've used there, we've had some clocking issues that sometimes the Sonifex gets thrown under, under the bus. <laughs> so, so we're not sure if it's that issue or not. Um, so, but I, I I don't have enough data to say that there's one way or the other. But that is the one that I know a couple people are are using pretty regularly to get Don, from Dante to SDI and from SDI back to Dante. Awesome. Thank you. Well, as we're approaching the top of the hour, I just want to get a couple of things out of the way here. Uh, reminder about what's coming up next week. We've got some awesome uh, sessions coming up, second hours on managing scope creep with, uh, scope creep with our project management team. Uh, that's kind of on our business Monday. I think I saw something about a lab on motion lower thirds. And if you've heard a lot about this Blackmagic camera app, uh, we're going to be doing a deep dive into that. So that's all interesting stuff. I know I've been loving it. Uh, also today, uh, if you're around immediately after the show and interested in knowing what it takes to be on the panel, there is a new panelist meeting. And that is going to be taking place immediately following the show. So be on the lookout for a link in Discord, hop into the Zoom, see what you're all about. Again, if, if you're already a panelist and you know the ropes, not a meeting that you have to attend, but if you'd like to learn about what it takes to be a panelist, then that is what the new panelist meeting is for. Uh, also, we've got a whole second hour here, uh, so we're going to go as long as your questions allow. So this is just a reminder. 
Our show runs on your questions. Ask them in Makana. Ask them on askofficehours.global. And again, you can get that by scanning the QR code, direct your browser over to there. And one more time, I can't say enough. We depend on the voting of the questions to determine what order that we're going to answer them. So if you're signing up for Makana, besides chatting with all the other participants, sometimes the panelists will throw a chat in there. You can also vote on the question so that we can arrange the whole show based around your level of interest. Let's go to the second hour. All right, welcome back to the second hour. And as we said at the top of the show, this is a second hour of general Q&A. So we're going to hop right back into questions and go right ahead. So uh, let's go ahead with the next question. John? Andre Dole in Berlin, using the VR co- the QR code, says, strange YouTube premium behavior. Since a few weeks ago, when finishing one video and auto-playing to a next one, I always get videos of a comedy series I subscribe to. It's only one of m- my subscriptions, but autoplay only plays this channel. Ideas? Go ahead, Chris. I think it's at least possible that YouTube just thinks you need more levity in your life. Okay. Okay, let's go ahead, Alex. Possibly. Yeah, the, the algorithm is really complicated. It's making a, it, the the algorithm for YouTube is just like looking into the sun when you think about what it's doing. And it's trying to figure out, you know, what you're most likely to click on. What what are you most likely to like? And it may have decided that after these, you've done some behavior at some point or many people like you with your same profile have done a behavior where they watch this and then they clicked over to something that was funny or they clicked over to this, you know, to, so it's looking at not the behavior of the kind of things that you watch, but not just the kind of things you watch, but also the kind of things that everybody watches that are like you. And, and, and I find that the recommendations are, my biggest complaint about YouTube is that I see the recommendation while I'm clicking away and then I want to go back and there's no way back. Like you'll never find it again, you know, like, and so, so you just have to be, so now I've learned to look very carefully at the recommendations because oftentimes they're, they're fun. And if it's just showing you Nate Bargatze, it's just because he's great. Like, you know, like, you know, like, like if, you know, you can, you know, there's no, there's no limit to the, like, there's a couple of Nate Bargatze ones that I can just watch over and over and over. Like, no matter how many times they pop up, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch that one again. It's good. Yeah. All right, Chris. You know, Alex, about a month ago, you made the comment about the uh, the JFK thing, you know, about uh, if if you believed in the yeah. grassy knoll, you were a nutcase, and now maybe not so much. Yeah. And I went and I watched, like, two JFK videos. And my, now YouTube, you get it. my YouTube channel—oh, <laughs> no, no, I, I, there's no way uh, Oswald worked them out. Yeah, yeah we, we all know I, that. I've, I've said that for decades, but, but my point is that my YouTube channel is— like sixty percent GFK stuff now. Yeah, it's crazy. If you keep on, if you just the, the the key is to share your share your account with your family so that they all they they watch so they, many things. They the algorithm it has, out. It has no the algorithm has no idea because my my whole family uses we one can't account. Understand you? Like he watches so much anime and then he watches so many things about robots and then he watches so much stuff. You know, like it's just it's yeah. You know, they have unless to you're going to pony up for a day to figure that out. Unless you're going to pony up for a second YouTube premium account because no one, I wouldn't wish the ads on my worst enemy. Uh, there's no way that you can like open a second browser and be like, okay, the, the oddball stuff, I'm going to watch in this version of YouTube. I, and then I, the stuff that I actually care about and I want to like curate. Because you, Alex, I think you said you do that with TikTok. You have a different device. I have different. five different devices <laughs> that I use. I, I've, I've, I've settled into one. The problem is, is that TikTok, you get into a groove and you can't get out of it. 
And so, so I have one TikTok that really sits inside of, I don't use as many, all of them anymore. I used to have a bunch of them and I had different accounts in each one. And I would be very careful, like I'm going to watch like how-to videos on this phone and I'm going to watch comedy on this phone and I'm going to watch... And I mostly watch just one now, but but I if I really want like how tos, then I go to this other TikTok account because it just it will just feed me how tos all day, you know. And and I and I skip over everything else very quickly, um, you know. So uh, uh, try to make sure I don't um, I don't screw up the algorithm. Yeah. Resistance is futile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, next question. Our next question is from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. I noticed the other day that while in a video call on my iPhone, there now is a control center option to disable the goofy gestures. Has this shown up in a new macOS update as well? Go ahead, Nigel. Yes, there has. So uh, I'm running the latest version because I'm a daredevil of Sonoma. And on the top bar, there's a little green box with a camera in it. And it has two different options. It has uh, it shows you that I've turned on uh, for my QuickTime. So if on my QuickTime screen, you'll now see something, but it's turned off for my Blackmagic camera. So you won't see the thumbs up happen. And you can use it if you go into that option. You can change the settings, uh, portrait, studio light, and reactions for each of the different outputs. And then uh, just if as one extra note into that on the macOS toolbar, if you're using anything that captures your screen, at the same time as uh, your camera's on, instead of that little green video icon, it'll look like the presenter icon where there's a little human shape in front of the rectangle. That'll give you the same clicking so that when you do, uh, so that when you do your thumbs up, you don't get all these crazy video effects because nobody wants that stuff. Why do I want that? Turn that off, please. No. Um, next question. Our next question is from Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromsø, Norway. There are so many different types of laughs, and hiding it under clothing needs different types of accessories. What's the most used or most popular product and tricks for hiding laughs under clothes? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, there, there's, a, um, there's a lot of tricks to this. I mean, the ones that we see the most in production are DPAs and uh, countrymen. So countrymen, you know, now we think of those as, as headsets, but they make a lot of low profile ones that are, and there's a lot of mics that do this, but these are the ones that I see the most at least are, are DPAs and countrymen's. And they're, they're very, very small pickups. And then the big thing that people work on is, is how do we, um, uh, you know, figure out how to get things from scratching. Scratching is the big thing is how do you create that? Um, you know, Mickey's got the same stuff that I would use uh, from Ursa, Bubblebee, um, Bubblebee Industries, Transpore Medical Tape, uh, Top Stick uh, Toupee Tape, um, Joe's Sticky Stuff. These are all things that we use, but some of them are like very like suede or or, or some kind of, um, you know, very, very soft uh, felt, or not felt, but but other things that aren't going to scratch up against the mic that you can fold around it and build kind of a bubble around it that it's going to sit underneath Um uh, what what you have there. And so that's the big thing that everyone's trying to figure out. You know, everyone's always working on. It. And a lot of times, most A2s or A1s that I that I work with on that have a little kit. It's like a little it's like a little fishing kit or something like that. But as moleskin, you know, and, um, uh, Mickey pointed out, that's what I was trying to think of when I said that. Um, the But they have a little kit because it's going to be different. It's different clothes. It's different, you know, what does it pull against? What can it do? What it can't do? And so they usually, it's it's not a a go-to, like I always use this thing. I mean, you when you put it on someone, you can see it, you always do the same thing. When you put it underneath things, my experience is, is it's it's an art. And um, you're, you're, hopefully you have someone who's got experience that understands how to do that art. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite a thing. 
Eventually, you have you have a kit of labs that are different colors, so that you can match it to to the cloth. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I'll, that I'll add is, um, you know, make sure you have your. I'm not. I'm going to use the wrong word, but put your little service loop in there, so that any tug on the cable is not a tug on your microphone. I know it's it's 101 stuff, but it, it's worth saying because we've all seen it not done, and then you get that. Like. There's there's a great. Um, it's not. This is a little overkill, but there's a Adam Savage. I th- I think in um, does a. He's hanging out. He he does a whole talk with the folks that do the mics for Hamilton. Worth watching. <laughs> like it just not that that's what you're going to do, but just understand. Like I just it's just a really good video. Like it's just a it's educational, but it's also you know it's Adam Savage, so it's it's got energy and it really digs in. It's very technical and it digs into it. I would highlight. There's a couple of them. There's some on how they mix Hamilton and some that how they do the mic. But there's a whole section. There's a whole video on the mics. And um, and how they build them into the wigs and how they build them into everything else and put them into the hats and what the challenges are. And it's a really, I, I, I would highly recommend it. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromsø, Norway asks, in civic public AV productions and media, what are the preferred methods for simplifying audio access for journalists? Are press boxes still common or are there newer alternatives? Go ahead, Alex. So many options. Uh, so, press boxes are still expected. Like, so if they, someone shows up, they still expect to be able to plug their XLRs into something um, that they're going to get a video out. Um, so that's going to be there. What The one thing that I do is uh, when I do these, I get Dante-based press boxes because a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that comes to you um, is the problem. What what gets be problematic is the is the, the travel to the press box is part of what gets some of the buzz that you hear. The other place it is everyone's plugging into this press box, and so um, you got to be kind of careful of when we supply the in in a press riser, which is typically what happens there. Um, when we supply the power, we make sure that it shares a ground. Um, and so so that, you know, we're not putting things in from a bunch of different walls. We want to make sure that there's no delta between the, the, the you know, the, the voltages there so that it's trying to get home some other way. And so the um, so uh, so getting them the same ground is important um, on the on the press riser um, and then having Dante, you know, be supplying it, you know, will solve many problems <laughs> like, you know like you know it's not that it solves all of them but it solves a lot of them um now the other thing that we do if you really there's you know for basic a you know civic public av that's about as best as you get is to get a is to get a press box um and and you can get one it just depends on how how big the press box is 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 uh how um uh you know how big the press box is depends on how many people are coming so you just kind of figure that out the other thing though that we've um that we found was that if a lot of them want the video because they are video cameras oftentimes are better. Now, the other thing that we do, and I, I admit this is a little manipulative, um, but when I'm doing some of these, a lot of times what we do is we do the press box and then I put, you know, and here's the stage, let's say down here. And what I do is I put our camera right there. So the camera sits, you know, in there. And so, um, so our camera and the big thing is, is our camera is isolated from the stage. So I don't have to, I don't have any shake at all. Um, they do <laughs> because I put the photographers on the same press box. So their cameras are all doing this stuff here. And our camera is rock solid with our person standing here. I usually stanchion it out like this so that our camera is unencumbered. There's nothing moving. And, and if they let me, I will section this off so that we're not even sharing the stage. So even my person isn't shaking. Um, and so, so then I have this rock solid camera that is that, that we spent hours, 
you know, getting tuned with everything else the day before and the press comes in, they get like, you know, 30 minutes to get set up on a shared press stage and their cameras are, you know, doing, and, you know, we give it to them. I mean, and, and here's the deal. That's what they get everywhere else. It's not like I'm taking something away from them. I'm just not giving them what I have. Um, then what I do is we provide a, um, basically a malt, but it's for the uh, video. So we, we give you a video, here's video with it. And in some larger events we've given, in international events, we give them, we have spigots that are, that are service panels, <laughs> not the device, but convenience panels that sit on the outside that, that they can plug into. And we, we mark what they are. This is, and we have some Terranexes in there. And basically we put other languages on other channels. We have one that's a straight stereo. That is whatever happened on the stage. But a lot of them they'll have, we'll put a bunch of channels in there. So we'll have... Um, you know, 10, 10 channels, 12 channels, up to 16 channels of, of interpreters going down that, that, that piece that are all being embedded onto that SDI. If you plug that stick, that spigot in, that's what you're going to get. And it, and, and it used to be, we'd convert to SDR and I mean, SD and H, not SDR, but SD or HD, we'd go 25, 30, you know, like we'd, we'd have you know, interlays progressive, like we have, you have one Terranex for each service, you push it out to each Terranex. And then you drop them out, you put them into a, you have a router and then you route them all into a, um, into these panels. And what's nice about that is that everyone just kind of comes in and just plugs into it. And then oftentimes we're delivering that back to a pool. Um, so it's the, the press pool means that it goes out to the switch or LTN or whatever in it or both. And people can just log in and pull it, you know, pull it down. When you start doing that, the only reason I expanded this is because when you start doing those kind of extra services, what ends up happening is you get less and less camera operators coming. The The networks will keep on sending cameras because they feel like it's their duty to to do that. And they'll get, but the smaller organizations will stop sending their camera operators and it just makes it less messy for you. <laughs> like it just, you know, if, if you do it over and over and over again that way, because what you're doing is you're providing so much service, you're providing a better signal more conveniently and less expensively to the client. Um, and, that, and what that does is the weight of that, it just slowly just draws out, except you'll have three or four networks there and everyone else will stop coming. Um, and then it's just a much more sane thing on the back end and everybody's adults. And I know I, I keep on talking about that, but it's just a, a, a full press pull is chaos, you know? And I mean, they are, the level of elbowing back and forth and pushing and, the the ability to interact with other human beings is very low by a lot of the people who get sent to these things. And so getting rid of those folks is really useful. And so you by this is a way that you create a system that that just gets the people who are the folks who have been doing it for 20 years, you know, like the, are the only ones that show up. Um, and, uh, and, and that just makes it a lot easier for you to run your show and, and you get better coverage of your event that way. So, I mean, I, I know I expanded that a little bit, but it's a Saturday. Um, and to some and degree, you're really also useful. controlling the narrative that's getting out you know, yes. to the world because you're the one <laughs> that's a side you know, you're in the driver's seat. It's, a, it's an ancillary benefit. <laughs> the side effect is that I get to frame it the way I want to frame it and I get to do what I want to do and I get to tell the story I want to tell. And it makes it easier because like there's little things like, um, um, step and repeat is there because you don't know who's going to shoot what, right? When you control the camera, what you do is you, you build the background in a way, um, you build the background in a way that you want it to look right. And then you, and, and on your frame, right? So you're, and, and the key, by the way, 
is to drive the background from the camera, not from the not drive the camera from the from the set. So you look at your frame and you make it look. And what you care about is that your subject looks like a film, like you know, like they they look great. Think of all those great films of the of the, the subjects. Um, I thought that uh, the the folks that really had me start thinking about that was the at the end of the well at the end of the Hillary Clinton campaign. Um, they had a team on there that was shooting, I think, with FX7s and all kinds of other stuff. And they, but they were shooting with these long, you know, full frame sensors and, and, you know, all this other stuff. And they, they got it in there. There was a, there was a rally that Michelle Obama did. And I was like, that looks like a film. Like, it just looks like a, there was these, these, these shots going across and everything else. When you watched it on, on the stream, you would see that it looked like a, you know, it just looked amazing and it made it more, feel more important. You know, it made it feel better. You know, and so that's when I really I was like, it really had me, it shook me up. And I was like, I got to think about how to, how to do, you know, so that's why I moved to super 35 sensors or above. I won't use, I won't use anything smaller than a super 35 um, lens, you know, unless I'm more than 75 feet because then it's just too hard to focus. But anyway, but the, the, uh, and what I do is I force our, our, I force our camera to be less than 75 feet. <laughs> so I just say, there's going to be seat kills and this is where they're going to look. And people will say, we're going to take 15 chairs out of the, out of the rally. And I'm like, yeah, but there's 2000 people watching. So who cares? You know, like, you know, like, you know, they just, just move them, add another row to the back, you know, like, you know, and, and so, you know, but, but those are the kind of things that you, you want to think about of, as far as, you know, improving, you know, how you, how you set those things up. Next question. The next question's from David Brady in New York, New York. What can I do to a personal media file that was digitized, but the colors are too washed out? Are there ways of using FFmpeg or other tools where I can punch up the colors a bit? Go ahead, Alex. I mean, typically I would take that into Resolve. I know that sounds like a heavy thing, but I would take it into Resolve and go into the color panel. That's where you're going to have the most control. Um, and given that you're in New York, I'd probably jump into After Hours or something with Charles, see if Charles will spend 15 minutes with you. Um, it'll take Charles about 15 minutes to pull some of the color out. But if you're going to do it on your own, um, I would do, uh, I would, I would take it into Resolve and, and do the tweaks there. You can definitely take it into Final Cut, but you're, you know, what you're doing is you're going to add some saturation and then you're going to see where you're at. You know, so as, as you add the saturation, the things that are right will be better and the things that are wrong will be worse. So you have to, you know, you're going to punch that saturation a little bit and then you're going to have to move the colors around a little bit to get it to work. Pretty tough to do that stuff in, in one one fell swoop. Mm -hmm. uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, Alex Ziskind has a video showing LLMs running locally on an M3 Max MacBook Pro. When do you think locally hosted large language models are a better choice than using a public LLM? Go ahead, Alex. When you don't want to share the content that you're making with other people. I mean, I think that's the, I mean, that's the, you can't, if you're working at Apple or many other companies, you can't be using LLMs to make, to help you with your code, you know, you're, you know, and so those are all the things that you're going to have trouble with. So uh, having the LLM, the, the primary reason I would say LLMs work is, is A, you want to have a very specific uh, criteria. So you're going to train it exactly on what you need. Like people are now moving to where they're training LLMs for medicine. They're training, I, there was something I was reading about that they said that a lot of times when a physician says, hey, I'm going to go look at your charts and they're going to walk away. There's evidently this very expensive tool that hospitals pay for that is like, you know, Google for um, 
you know, Google for doctors, you know, like I have these symptoms and it gives you back. So when they go look at your charts, they're, they're going to ask the, the medical Google to, to tell them, you know, here are some options of what might be going on there. And um, uh, which just helps them think through it. But they're starting to train the LLMs on that data so that they have a, you know, an AI solution that can look at that stuff. And some of the early research is showing that the, the AI is pretty good at, at, at um, looking at your symptoms and telling it there it's at least as good as the doctors if it has enough data <laughs> like it's it, you know it's, it's it's not biased it just it just looks at what those things are and is coming back pretty effectively go ahead john yeah most of the cloud providers are creating ways to have corporations have their own private models where the the data that the models are trained on is private the queries are private but it's all hosted in the cloud using that organization's tools as far as hosting like locally on a single computer they they are so compute intensive that it's almost never going to be worth it to take the extra time to wait for your local computer to process it with our current LLMs at the complexity they are today. And I've even tried, because uh, you can get stable or diffusion B for Mac will let you run stable diffusion locally. And I know that uh, I think John Preto said before uh, that he has experience running those uh, models locally and that you have a, you have a base model um, that basically is setting the, the rules of, you know, here's English, this is general knowledge, and then you're building on top of that with, you know, your specific data that you'd like to keep private. So, the, and, I, and I know that there's, you know, GPT Enterprise from OpenAI, and it's encrypted and apparently it's private. I still am very, very hesitant to put anything in there that I wouldn't want to be uh, just out there in the ether. Uh, next question. Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromsø, Norway, asks, shooting S-Log3 Cine exposed to the right by 1.7 stop, sending HDMI to a display via microconverter with a LUT from LUTCALC. How should I compensate for the increased exposure in LUTCALC? Is stop correction the correct setting to change? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think that... Um the increased exposure in LUT cal I'm just not sure whether you're considering that to be accurate or inaccurate um, in that area. The, the, the reality is that log has a lot more data than you're going to see when you're looking at it through a LUT. So, so I think that that's the, I mean, one of the things that you have to do in general when you're trying to make hard decisions in this area is you got to make sure that your, your monitor is calibrated. Um, we're using a lot of the, the Black Magic has a monitor, uh, you know, a monitor adapter that's going to take that SDI, convert it to SD, um, HDMI. But what it also does is it has a sensor on it has a it has a plug for a call, uh, camera calibrate um, sensor on the front. So you put it you put that box in the middle, and then it can calibrate the monitor to make sure that it's ready for that signal. Um, so you want to be looking at something like that if you're going to try to make these hard decisions there. Otherwise, what I would say is that you do. Like, I don't make any decisions about signals based on what it looks like on a monitor. I open scopes, <laughs> you know, like, so, so you're going to look at what your nominal va values need to be on scopes and you're going to, you're going to make decisions. You're going to look at the RGB parade. You're going to look at the waveform. You're going to look at the vector scope. Those are the big three that you're going to need to have opened. I don't do shoots without them. Like I don't, I don't shoot stuff. I don't do remote shoots where I'm looking at the footage without scopes. You know, like I scope, 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 scopes, you know, like don't, don't trust your eye. Um, uh, always, you know, you can look at it and say, okay, it looks great. And if it looks good on that monitor, you can always get back to that. 
if you're really happy with it, there's some version of that that will get back to it in production. So you know that you can get there. But I would, but I do things, I don't do a lot by, I mean, I look at it and say, hey, it looks good as a quality thing. But as a, I, I want to, you know, systematically look at a scope and make sure that I'm not peaking in one channel. I'm not, you know, those things are all with where, where they need to be. And most colorists that I know are pretty dependent on looking at data to make decisions. And I'm not sure exposed to the right by 1.7 stops. Does that mean that it's that it's overexposed on the monitor, or maybe it's over? I, the, I think the it's, idea of shooting log is that you're going to capture all of that dynamic range data anyway. So you right. shouldn't. I think it's a little overexposed. I think that's what he's yeah. saying. A little, little uh, pushing it a little bit. Yeah. So um, again, in God we trust. All others bring data. Next question. Zach Stallsmith in Chautauqua, New York, asks, I am currently getting away from using iCloud and slowly migrating to a TerraMaster 2-bay NAS. What other options would you recommend for a home file server to store all of my personal and pers professional files? Go ahead, Nigel. So I think normally here we'd remind everybody of the 3 to one idea that you need three copies, two devices, and at least one off-site. So I'm not ready to get rid of my iCloud. There's a particular role for me, particularly if you have iOS devices. Uh, and I have a certain comfort making sure that there are critical documents that I might need to, to get to any time securely in iCloud. In terms of local NAS, I went to a Synology 1522 Plus because you can put all the bells and whistles on to make sure it's fast I.O. Uh, but I think any of them, uh, of those devices, unless you have specific production performance needs, uh, work pretty well. But But don't give up. Your offsite, there is an important role for offsite for documents and things that you must have copies of. I'll second the Synology recommendation. Uh, I started mirroring all of the cloud based file storage services a Dropbox, a Google Drive, a OneDrive, an iCloud Drive, anything else. There's a mirror of all of those services locally on my home network, all syncing to like a 28 terabyte uh, Synology. And that's important to me because if the internet's down and I need that file, I need to be able to get to it. There's And there's also the the idea of having to wait for it. You're also in a little bit of a buy once, cry once situation with uh, the network attached storage. If you think you need a two bay, buy four. If you think you need a four bay, buy six or eight because it's infinitely easier to expand than to go ahead and transition your entire file system over to a new NAS. Uh, that'd be my only other feedback there. Uh, next question. Dirk Brewer in Guatemala wants to know, yesterday I upgraded Mac OS Sonoma from 14.1.1 to 14.1.2. Unfortunately, the external 2-terabyte hard drive disappeared. Dirk's tried Disk Utilities First Aid and then Get Data Back Pro with no luck. Any recovery app for Mac OS that you would recommend? Go ahead, Chris. Um. I'm curious, was your drive attached when you did the upgrade? I just, because I did the the same upgrade 14.1.2 uh, yesterday as well, and I just tested a handful of uh, SSD drives, and every one of them mounted just fine, I, literally just in the last, like, two minutes. So I'm curious, was it, was it because the drive was attached when you did the upgrade? I, I don't have an answer to to get it back, but every the, the I'm an editor, so I was a pile of the drives laying around, but mine all mounted just fine. Go ahead, Alex. 
Uh, I would also change the ports. If you're using a studio, um, change the ports from the front to the back if, they're, if they were in the front. Um, I'm having an issue right now that I haven't quite got to the bottom of, which is that my front USB-C ports on my Mac Studio will not, lo- will not mount drives. I've never seen this problem before. It just happened over the last couple of days. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. So what version of the OS are you running oh, on your studio? Venture. Like it just Maverick. happened. Um, so uh, I, I just did this on the front of my computer out of, out of mm-hmm. uh, convenience. No problem at all. No, no, I, it's, I've used it for since I bought it that way. Literally in the last, I, it did some kind of security update. And then I, it, for whatever reason, the front ones are not, it sees the drive, the drive turns on. Um, it is uh, like, there's a light there. Does my, it see I'm, data on the drive? No, it doesn't. So here's the deal. It just, the drive, it doesn't see the drive. It doesn't, the drive doesn't show up in disk utilities. The my mix pre is connected to that one of those mount one of those ports like it's it's passing data it's not like the port went dead but it will not I it will not it will not look and it was, and and I can't and these I are your Picatinny NVMe hmm these are those Picatinny rail no it's all NVMEs of them any drive no, it will not drive. see any drive on the front if I plug it into the back it immediately sees it like so it's a it's a thun, you know and I, and I haven't quite figured it out there's two things that happened um, at the same time one is I had an update. And the other one is that I, I was looking at some SSDs that I used an SSD reader. You know, it's like a little USB-C to an SSD, like a raw SATA. And both of those things happen on the same day. And I don't know whether the, one was connected to the other, but it just, it is, yeah, for whatever reason, it's decided the front two ports cannot be accessed by a hard drive. It might be some kind of security setting somewhere or something, but it, it just turned on. And now I can't turn it on. I can't, I can't use them. So. It's so frustrating when you have two computers that behave completely differently. Well, this is the same computer. It's the front versus the back. It is literally the front of my computer. Yours is easy to fix, though. It's an easy fix. Um, What you need to do on Amazon, if you go and search on Amazon, if you buy a cable that's like 10 inches longer and then just plug it in in the back, you'll be fine. (laughs) It's full. It's full. Like, I have to unplug a monitor to connect two, to to put two drives, because I had to, I was doing this Topaz uh, frame, frame reframing last night. It ran all night. And, and I had to copy from one drive to the other. So I had to unplug one of my monitors just so I could like have it go from one drive to the other because it's so, you know, it's 300 gigs or whatever. And so it was, it was like this, this, um, yeah. Anyway, it's 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 not that I don't have a longer cable. I don't have any more ports. No more ports. Go ahead, John. Yeah, Get Data Back Pro looks like it's a Windows application. So it looks like you've already taken the hard drive and put it into another machine just to check to see if that would fix anything. Um, that's what I would try first. If the question is, is the hard drive not mounting? Or is it mounting and you can't get to the data? If it's just not mounting, try taking the hard drive itself out of the enclosure, put it into a new enclosure if you can. And then I've used Disk Drill Pro on Mac OS to successfully recover data from an old hard drive. Excellent. Next question. Dennis Champion Walker from Radcliffe on Trent, UK asks, I'm getting ready to buy a new computer. I've decided that I need a 16-inch MacBook Pro, but which processor and how much RAM should I go for? There are so many options, and now you can't upgrade later. The pressure is on to make the right choice. Go ahead, Nigel. Uh, hello, Dennis. That's the borough of Rushcliffe, where I grew up, is uh, where Dennis lives. So greetings back to the Nottingham folk. Um, I have three uh, Macs, lucky enough. I have an M1 uh, Mini. I have a Ultra uh, in a studio, and I have a, a two Macs. The two Macs is in a MacBook Pro. 
I don't think I even touch the performance of that. I don't do very large jobs on it. I do most of my large jobs on my Ultra. And so I think it was a work thing, so I apologize to myself. Um, that Max was a waste of money in my MacBook Pro. So unless you really need the capacity, I think the Pro, not the Max, probably buys you a long way. Uh, having said that, the other mistake I made was buying too little uh, hard disk or, or solid state. So I'd definitely go for the one terabyte. As to memory, as much as you can afford with whatever is left. The only other thing I'll throw in on the Pro versus the Max, there is a difference on how many screens that those chips will support. So depending on what your use case is, if you're trying to hook into a lot of external monitors, the difference between the uh, M3 to the M3 Pro to the M3 Max is going to dictate how many screens that laptop can actually drive. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, and I think that as far as RAM goes, I would say that the thing that's going to make the biggest difference is getting to 64 gigs is where I'd probably buy most machines at this point. Um, you know, I used to think that, no, oh, 16 is fine and then and, and 32, but I would say 64 means that you're pretty safe for most applications. If you think you're going to do heavy 3D, if you think you're going to do any kind of heavy processing, um, there are, you know, LLMs, those types of things. You may want to consider more. Um, I don't know what that max is out at now for, for RAM, but, um, uh, but, but I would say 64 gigs is a, is a pretty solid number uh, for RAM. I would buy as much hard drive space as I can because the hard drive is so fast internally. And so, um, so that's where I really put more money into it. Not because normally I buy, I used to be in this mode where I'd always buy the smallest drive I could get in, in there or maybe a 500 gig or whatever. Now, I, you know, the mistake I made with my studio is that there's only one terabyte and I really wish I had put eight, you know, in there because, you know, it is so, it's five gigs a second. Like it is so fast. And so I'd rather copy a project onto it and work on it because if I have the little NVMe raids that, that Chris got me hooked on, I'm getting 2.2 gigs. So I'm getting half that speed. And when I take five or six, 6K raw, you know, um, files and I want to cut something in Resolve, can't. <laughs> like, you know, like on off the drive, I can on the internal drive, it it just hums right along like nothing happened. I literally can't edit those on, on the smaller drive because building the proxies isn't accurate and resolve. That's a whole other problem. And so I can't get accurate edits from resolve on those. And, and so I, so I have to stick with the, the, the single files. I know Chris is. You also have there. a fixed number of times that, that, uh, that an SSD can be read and written to. So if you have a smaller drive that you're moving everything off of and then moving everything onto and then moving everything off of and replacing all the data again. If you're doing a lot of shuffling, you're going to reduce the lifespan of that drive. Go ahead, Chris. I can say, first of all, hey, Dennis, I hope you're well. Um, I just bought a 16-inch uh, the other day, and if you're looking at and I will say that I kind of took a little bit of um, uh, inspiration from uh, uh, Jason Burke. What I ended up with was the um, the M3 Max because, again, uh, the 16-inch, more ports and more monitors. And I opted for um, the 16 and 40-core version because that allows you to get up to 64. It's interesting. If you get the 14-core, they give you a couple of different RAM options. But if you get the 16-core, you get different RAM options, which is bizarre. I've never seen that before. So I did the 1640, 64 uh, gigawatts of uh, memory and um, a four terabyte internal. So that's all the cool kids are getting. That's what you should probably get. Just 
you know, I think the, the flying toaster's iMac behind me has a 40 gigabyte internal hard drive. <laughs> it's just wild. Next question. 40 megabit, right? Or, four meg- or, or four, 40, of RAM. Of 40 of gigabytes RAM. of hard drive space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Next question. JJ McKenna in San Rafael, California asks, how do artists mitigate issues that they should that they should expect when the writer test has failed? Do they include particular emergency crews to fly in to fix the possible issues? We need some brown M&Ms. Get the brown M&Ms out of there. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, most of the time, you know, the the event, the stage, the audio, the lighting, everything else, the cameras, all of those things they come with the band. So the band doesn't have a, does, isn't worried about those parts of the rider. It's, you know, so the things that usually are happening are the facilities. And depending on how big the band is, the facilities have gotten a lot better too. Um, but that's usually most, the most of the facility problems, not the concert problems, but the concert problems are stuff that, um, uh, that are managed by, again, um, the Tate or someone else that's doing the tour. Um, you know, and so the, so that's not usually the issue. The issue is like power or things that are happening around the, you know, around the, the facility that usually can be solved very quickly with money. Like, you know, like, so, so the, the you know, like there, most of the problems that happen at a venue that are not related to the AV and the staging and the infrastructure are things that are readily available. They just cost money to bring in. And because you have a rider, you tell people that, Hey, uh, you know, you're in breach of contract, <laughs> you know, and so, so I don't care what it costs you to, to, to get this in, you're going to get it in, or, you know, there's going to be all, there's a whole, usually a good rider will have a ton of things that happen if you don't do what you said you were going to do. And so, you know, most of this comes down to a strong, uh, manager, just basically bare knuckling the location to handle what it needs to handle because it was, that's why these riders are so particular and that's why they're so deep is because it allow it gives them the it gives them the cudgel that they need to pound somebody into the ground if they don't give them what they ask for, and um, usually the legal ramifications for as the concerts get bigger are very big, you know, and and so the um uh you know they don't fix everything. We saw problems in Brazil where the rider didn't say that you had to give water to everybody when they came in. So there's you know there's a you know the facilities can still really you know very badly screw things up. Um, but, but most of the stuff that's there now for that concert, hundred percent, they can fly stuff in and out for a large tour. They have, I mean, they'll put things on private jets to get them there. Like, you know, like these are, you got to realize that like a Taylor Swift show is generating 10 to $12 million. Uh, it's grossing, well, 10 to 12 and some change a million dollars per night. You know, they'll figure it out. <laughs> like, you know, like what they don't want is, you know, iPhones shooting things that aren't working or anybody not having a good experience when people spent that kind of money on it. So, A, there's a there's a, a pr- primary, a backup, or, you know, there's whole trucks full of, you know, like I have a crikey. When I go out on my cell, I have a little 1510 that's a crikey kit. When our big fly kits go out, we have a rolling case that's one or two cases that have literally say crikey on the top. And they have lots and lots of things to fix things. These these um, groups have whole uh, trucks that are just there that are extra things that just in case something goes wrong, these are the backups. You know, there's a, um, I might have mentioned this before at some point, but I worked with a company in a, in a big convention and I looked at what they were doing. And, and the only reason I got they got my attention is they cut something and none of the sawdust hit the ground. They have, it has like a vacuum built into it. And I had 
10 years ago, I'd never seen that before. And I was like, what is that? And he go, oh, that's nothing compared to the truck. And I was like, the tr- do you have a truck of this? And so we went out there and it's a double expando uh, um, tractor trailer truck, you know, um, full. And what it did is it had printers and it had 3D printers and CNC and soldering stations and, and a, a, a shop bot. I don't know if you've seen a shop bot, but it's a giant router. Um, it had all the stuff like it was like this lab. And I was like, what do you got? Where, who hired you? And he goes, oh, we just got hired to fix things. Like literally for a, con- uh, for a conference, they pay them $10,000 a day and they bring this thing in and they, and there's three of them. And it turned out that they all went to Tufts University and one was an architect, one was an engineer and one was um, a designer or something like that. And they all hate, ten, at their 10 year, year reunion, they all said, we hate our jobs. And they decided to build this thing where they just get to fix problems all the time. And so they just go from one place to the other but their only job there is like someone decided they wanted a neon sign. Someone decided they wanted, there's a little problem with the, with their booth. There's some, you know, and you see these guys come out with these little glasses and they're like, draw something out and they go back and they come back with a little piece and stick it in. And, and, um, so these kind of things, you know, if you, and, and I asked them like, how busy are you? And they're like, we're booked a year in advance, like all the time. We do 250 days a year. <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's like, he's like, you know, it just, it just, we're just booked and people get on our calendar as fast as they can because it's so booked. Because once you've hired us once, you'll never, like for a big conference that costs 10 million or 20 million or $30 million to execute, spending $10,000 for a truck that just does the, that fixes, makes everything just a little bit better, um, you know, is, is great. So the reason I bring that up is that it's, it's so worth coming prepared to solve problems. I, I can't tell you how many clients get turned off when they're the company that they say says no, like no, no, we can't do that. Or it's definitely worse. What JJ's talking about of it broke. Like coming to the client and telling something broke is that's probably the end of your relationship with that client. But being able to sit there and dance with whatever's going on and making it a better show, not many, not many people do that well, and it's really worth it. And at some point, you know, the show's going live. If the show starts at eight. Uh, if it's not on by eight oh five, you've got problems. So if it's if you're <laughs> live, us, you're live. For most of what I do, if it's not on at eight, I mean, like it's 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 you know a, a couple seconds and yeah, you know. So if it, if if you've got go time, like you've yeah. it's it's time. So yeah. you know it's worth it to have it work. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania asks, "What's the status of display capture and window capture on Mac for OBS version 30? They seem to be hidden in a section labeled depreciated. Display capture seems to work with minimal testing, but not all windows seem to show up. Go ahead, Alex. OBS's connection to Mac is tenuous. I think if you use the simple things of cutting back and forth and doing those things like Chris does, I think you're probably fine. Asking OBS Mac to do what OBS PC does is a little much. It's like it's doing the best it can. So, um, you know, I would not, I would not depend on any extravagant solutions for OBS on the Mac. Yeah, I have the good fortune of not understanding what OBS does on the PC, so I don't know what I'm missing. But I, I use OBS to flip my teleprompter monitor around and to, you know, have the uh, have scopes in the one screen for, because for I sim- still haven't shelled out for Nob. I'm like, yeah. For simple things, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's just but I just wouldn't just don't don't get too don't complicated depend on it. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. The the screen capture tool is in a subfolder called deprecated, but if you look back further up on the screen, there is a selection for Mac OS screen capture, which mostly I think they're changing the name of it. They've maybe they've changed some of the functionality of it. 
But if you're looking for the same thing that you were looking for, it's just, it's been renamed. Next question. Matthew Lacoont in Oakland asks, how does one manage the wind tunnel sound from an ATEM1ME and 2ME models? Has anyone modded their units with upgraded fans? Go ahead, Alex. People have not modded these ones. Uh, I know that we had, during COVID, a lot of people were modding their mini extremes. And I can't think, I can't remember the name of the fans, but they were very, very quiet. And they definitely took them apart and put the new fans in. Of course, you're, you've given up your warranty at that point. So, so think about, you know, like as soon as you open that thing up, you're not going to be able to tell black magic it's not working. Um, so just know that that's, that's the cost of it. But you can, um, uh, you can open them up and, and, and swap the fans out. And there are fans that are dramatically quieter than what black magic uses for, for its, its, its air movement. What we do is put it in a box that is that'll drop thirty to sixty dB of sound. You know, so so if I want to put it in the same room, I'm going to put it into a you know it's a a quieter. I can't think of what what it's called right now, quiet box or whatever. But we put them in there, and they'll like I put elementals in the same room, and those things are like you open it up, and it's just like it's we call them the jet engines because they sound like two jet engines, and then you close it and you can barely hear them. And so you can do that or you move them to another room. I mean, we, you know, typically we're not operating in the same. This is why I like, this is why I don't like switchers. I, I think these ones, if you're talking about the one and the two of that have all the cables going to the back, then I apologize for you because that's going to be, that's one of the reasons that we don't like that. We like to have uh, rack mounted switchers that we can put into a box or somewhere else as opposed to, you know, on the desk switchers because the on the desk switchers make too much noise. Uh, and that's one of the many problems with them. I've got an old Intel MacBook Pro that needs one of those boxes. Uh, we nicknamed that the jet engine. She yeah. sounds like she's taken off when you open up Safari. <laughs> Next yeah. question. Cindy Drozda from Erie, Colorado asks, if I like a 14 to 140 lens on my micro four thirds camera, which lens would I need on an APS-C camera that's in the same position? I'm trying to understand the difference between the sensors. Go ahead, Samuel. Well, uh, the thing with the micro for third sensor, it's like uh, half the the field of view of the uh, full frame sensor and the APS-C sensor is in between. So you can say uh, uh, the, the lenses, they always uh, are, uh, are noted in 35 millimeter equivalent. And uh, you have to uh, uh, multiply by two to get full frame and uh, the uh, APS-C is uh, between. Uh, so in your case, the the eight, eighteen, the fourteen to one of uh, one forty would be, uh, if you do the math, it will be a, a eighteen to one seventy eight. So the closest closest thing to this in the APSC equivalent, you didn't say what brand you're going with, but I'm assuming perhaps it's Sony. So at least Sony has a eighteen to two hundred, uh, and also Timron has a one that's. The Tamron one is about $400 and the, the Sony is $800. I don't uh, have a, a experience with these lenses specifically. And they're like, uh, they're, uh, they're not uh, constant aperture, so it will get darker when you zoom in. And besides just focal length, the other thing to think about is the way that the bokeh is going to react. If you're moving to a larger sensor camera, it's going to uh, make the amount, it's going to shrink your depth of field. So you may have to adjust what f-stop your camera's at and your lighting if you want the same look uh, on the same lens. Next question. 
Our next question is from Douglas Carmichael. For those using a large sample or content libraries on a MacBook, MacBook Pro, is it worth it to pay an extra 1200 US for an 8 terabyte SSD, or should you fit the libraries on an external SSD? Go ahead, Alex. I would not buy an 8 terabyte drive to put libraries on it. Um, I would do it. I would do it that on an external drive, um, because a you may want to use those libraries somewhere else, and it, and it's just not a cost effective to, to fill up the eight. The reason you buy the eight terabytes, in my opinion, is because you want to edit off of them. Like you want to do something that requires incredibly fast. Uh, the, the that's what you want that drive for is not to have a bunch of storage that you can throw boxes into. It's a it's a high performance drive. And you want to be able to use it as a scratch drive for whatever you're doing. But I wouldn't fill it up with libraries. I would put those in an external drive. And if you are uh, paying $1,200 and you have a download once option, 321, back her up. Next question. Jason Robert Shaw in Sarasota, Florida asks, I'm finding AirPods starting to irritate my ears. Has anyone on the panel used open ear bone conduction headphones for listening to podcasts and audiobooks? Recommendations? John, kick us off. Yeah, I use the Shocks. It's an older version of the Shocks. I don't think they probably make any more of the sport model. And they work fine for just spoken word-like podcasts, except for they really hurt my tragus, which is the little nubbin in the front of your ear hole. Um, that starts hurting like the Dickens after about an hour. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I have some of the open runs, uh, the Shock ones. I have to tell you the most biggest disadvantage for me and these, this device is the size of the case, which is so big that I find that when I travel, I don't want to take it with me because it takes up too much space in my travel bag. And I have other things. By the way, the open shocks, uh, the shocks open run are 25% off on Amazon, at least for me today. So just about $100. I just picked up a pair of those open comms because they've been mentioned enough times on the show. The only thing is the uh, that connector. It's got a proprietary charger, which I was a little bummed about because that's like everything's USB-C. Um, if I turn it up super loud uh, because I'm in a noisy environment, it, it tickles my head. And that's all I got. Uh, but it really, it sits right on the temples, uh, which is nice. I was trying to uh, have a conversation with someone, and I think it was like my Nana FaceTime me or something because I wanted to, I had sent her something on Amazon. I wanted to see her open it up. And I was trying to tell her like, hey, hold on one second. I have to have a conversation. She didn't get that. And she kept talking in my ear, and it was like, oh, my gosh, she's in my head. Like, when I when I didn't want her to, I ended up, like, ripping it off. But, yeah, love the open comms. I wish the, the only other, I wish that little boom, I, it's just awkward when I'm not talking. I just always look like, I just, you end up leaving it up. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I swing the boom back, but I use the, again, also the open comm. This is the open comm, um, and I have two of these. Um, that I use um, specifically. There are other ones that do this that I'm thinking about buying. I'm, I just haven't gotten around to it because they have longer booms. I would even go with a longer one. I wouldn't get one without the boom. And the reason for that is because um, it really becomes your daily driver for talking on the phone. The quality of the audio for the person on the other side, we don't usually hear it. So what I do is I got on the phone with someone, I switched from my AirPods to this, to this, like which sounds the best. And this was by far the best quality um, that someone that that um, the person on the other side said this is a, this sounds the best. I can do a lot of things. I find that I can work on things. I can move around. I can do all kinds of stuff with this on with the with it down and talk, and it's just fine. Um, so I'm really happy with it. Um, I use it a lot. The reason I got it was specifically because I wanted to be able to listen to program in my ears for a show and listen to comms. So literally, I was using open comms for comms. 
because now I have two shows going on and I don't have to figure out the routing. I can do that anywhere. I just plug my headset into whatever is giving me the program. I throw this on top and I can hear comms on top of the show. Um, and I found that that to be super, super valuable. Um, I, what's funny is, is that I don't use my AirPods almost at all anymore. Um, I use the UE Fits um, that Nigel and I got and I think we put them together. If I want to listen to music, that's what I'm, if I'm listening to music and I might want to take a phone call, I put the UE Fits in. If I want to be on phone calls, I, I, I wear these. And the only other thing I have some ribbon headsets that I've been listening, when I really just want to sit and listen to music, I use these ribbon headsets um, that I got. And then I have, uh, and then I have that when I'm flying, I use the AirPod Maxes. So I have very different views of exactly when I use different headphones, but it's not one size fits all. It's definitely using the ones. But my the one thing that has been the odd device out is the actual AirPods or AirPod Pros that I have. Um, I've largely, they just, they're too average across all the things that I want to do to, for me to use them. I have specific use cases for, for each one. I was RFIing myself listening to me read the other Saturday, which was fun because I just went to all the chapters and I was like, next question, next question, next question. When you listen to your own voice on the Shocks Open Comms, it's a weird, it's just weird. It's like, cause it's coming from inside your head. Just fair warning. If anybody's doing a, a little introspection. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, Kodak is now selling a new Super 8 film camera. Considering the Blackmagic Design Sintel scanner doesn't support Super 8 cartridges, how would you get the film into digital files for editing? Go ahead, Alex. You send it out. I mean, there, there are definitely companies that are doing um, film scanning of 8mm. They may do it as a telecine. They, they, could, they could be using it as a scanner, but they could also be doing telecine. And so, they, um, so it, it can be, you know, a couple different options um, that, are, that are available. But there are scanners that do it. If for some reason it's, they don't have a compatible version, they'll literally capture a, a controlled projection of it. But, the, uh, um, but the, there's a lot of scanners out there. And I'm, I'm sure that Kodak didn't release the camera not knowing how it was going to get back to digital. Because I, I get that you're shooting on film, but you're still going to want a, a digital version of it. Get yourself a color timer. All right, next question. Danny Grizzle in Longview, Texas asks, After decades in media production, I'm seeing things on YouTube that baffle me. Not necessarily technical aspects, but producer level on a research quality and business model behind that. Is Office Hours a suitable venue to explore this? Go ahead, Chris. The, the direct question you're asking, Danny, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I'm interested in exactly what you mean. Are you saying that you're seeing things on YouTube that you don't understand the business model, um, the, which might be, I mean, I see stuff on YouTube all the time that I find fascinating to watch. But when I start thinking of it, like from a business standpoint, it's like, who's making money off this? How, how is this getting paid for? And, and some of the stuff is really nice production. Um, I can think of one in particular, the, the B1M, I think it's called. It's a, it's a YouTube channel that looks at giant building projects. And I, I find it fascinating really interesting i have no idea how they're making money with it but if that's what you're talking about uh maybe it'd, it'd be interesting to have discussions about certain things it, also keep in mind that a lot of times stuff on youtube is is hobby related i know if if you could search for my face you'll find my face in videos that have nothing to do with my business but it's stuff that i do that i, I do just for fun all right go ahead alex 
Yeah, I, I think that it's definitely worth, I mean, ask specific questions about that. We'll have, we'll, we'll have at least a lot of opinions about, about that. And, um, you know, so, so I think that it, it's a good conversation of figuring out, because I do think that, you know, the thing about, you know, used to, YouTube is such an incredible opportunity for people to just generate revenue. Maybe it's not enough to, you know, pay for their house, but for a lot of people being able to get an extra, you know, it starts off with getting an extra couple hundred dollars a month or, um, or being able to, you know, make their business a little bit more successful. I'm just amazed at the variety of YouTube every day. Like when I pop up, I go, I can't believe I can just go search and find that. By the way, one, I did finally do the research on one thing that was very important to me is whose AI voice does, is that, who is it? Like, I was like, who is that guy? Like that, that you know, the very assertive, you know, no, 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 you know, like he just, he, and I couldn't, I was like, I got to find it. It's 11 labs, Adam. They literally didn't even go down one. Like it's the first voice, <laughs> the very first voice on, on, on 11 labs is called Adam. And that is the voice that you hear everywhere, Damn. everywhere, every TikTok, every whatever. I'm, I'm like, they didn't even get creative enough to go to the next A. It is literally like we, they opened it, they listened to it and they were like, Sure, that sounds good, but that's the that is the voice that you hear over and over. This 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 kind of guy that feels like he'd be really arrogant at a at a dinner party, talking to you about something. That's the that's Adam. It's Adam. Anyway, I had I had to solve that mystery? Just figure figure that out. Imagine that that when they're like when the Siri lady went out to order a coffee. Like that's had to mess. But I will with say that I am surprised that Siri hasn't gotten better in the sense that. These AI voices are like, I have to admit, when I first heard that AI voice, the Adam voice, I wasn't 100% certain. It felt a little stilted, but I wasn't 100% certain it wasn't some guy. And then after I heard it a bunch of times, I was like, okay, well, no one's doing all of these. And um, so, and I think that when I go through them, the amount of control you have in 11 labs, by the way, is kind of stunning. Like you can make it more expressive, less expressive. It tells you when things are going to get unstable, which means it just had the, the intonations get really weird if you turn it up too high. Um, but I'm truly amazed at, at that process. And what that's opened up, by the way, is all these people that don't, that don't necessarily have a good voice, that don't have a, you know, they just want to do the animation. They don't want to try to figure out how to write. They just want to write it and have it come out exactly the way they wrote it. They don't have to figure that out. And especially if you're doing foreign stuff, if you're a foreigner that wants to do stuff for YouTube, it's better to use a AI voice than to use your own if, it, if you have broken English. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, when do you use a fixer when working in a new location and how do you find one? Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, we don't always use fixers in the United States. A lot of times we have enough connections that we do it. But when we go to other countries, we always have a fixer. So a fixer, usually you're asking people who are in production like, hey, do you know someone in Rome, you know, um, or, you know, or something like that. You know, for instance, you know, and, and I don't remember, I actually don't remember how I got connected. Like my fixer in Rome is Dario. And Dario is, he knows lots and lots of production f folks. He knows, but he, he also knows how to do things like get us past the Swiss guard without having to look through all of our equipment every single time. You know, like those are the kind of, like you'll see, you'll walk over there and sit there and talk. And the next thing you know, you're in, you're in. <laughs> you know, so, so the, um, uh, so there's the fixers will, you know, what you're looking for is someone who, they know the lay of the land. They know what the rules of the local country are, the local city. They know how to. They know where all the rental places are. They have access to production, you know, uh, uh, production people. But the 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 really good fixers are the ones that can schmooze. You know, they they wander around and they're talking to everybody. And and um, even if you tell them not to shake the Pope's hand, they'll still shake the, his hand. It's really problematic. But but the um uh, but the 
uh, but they, they're very, in some ways, gregarious. You don't ask them a lot about how, the one thing in, 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 a, in certain countries, you don't ask them a lot about how they get things done. Like you don't want to know how a fixer gets things done. And like we had my, we had to fly into Ecuador and Ecuador is a non-carnet country. And um, my brother flew in, I didn't go. We didn't know exactly how customs was going to work. So I hired a fixer there. I asked someone, I hired a fixer there. And I asked my brother, like, I, I paid him, I don't know, I paid the fixer like $1,000 to, to work with my brother. And uh, he, I said, all the film companies use this one guy. So anyway, my brother lands, he's got a lot of gear. He's, he's, he's shooting on the coast of Ecuador. And, and uh, he, he lands and I call, I, you know, I text him, you know, about an hour after he landed. I said, how did, how did customs go? Because we just, it was total chaos. Like we had no idea how it was going to work. He goes, customs? He said, customs, a question mark. He goes, I got out of the, I got out of the uh, plane. I was taken to a, a ca- uh, like a, like a little um, cafe in the, in the airport. And I had a drink and then I got in the car <laughs> because I didn't see customs. Like, and I was just like, and I'm like, that's a good fixer. <laughs> so so I, I don't know exactly what happened there, but it all sorted itself out. So, um, so those are the, you know, that's, that's the, it just depends, but you have to have one, especially in emerging world countries. It is life and death. Like you need a fixer. You need someone there that understand that you can trust um, that that is going to you know manage manage your needs. Go ahead, Nigel. So the best source for good fixers is other good fixers. They know yeah. each other in other countries. Your insurance company, if you're doing international travel, may have recommendations for you. I had to do some uh, meetings in Russia, and they recommended. A, what they called a bodyguard for me. He really wasn't guarding my body. What he was guarding from is that we're driving in a car, someone has a crash and you can't speak Russian. You need someone who knows how to play the game in the local language. And that's really what mostly fixers do at that level. I have to tell you, we did walk into the Red Square and, Red Square, and he looked at the Kremlin and he goes, this side is political, this side is uh, KGB, this side was my office. I went, okay, enough. All right. Um, so we've got a little bit more questions than we have time for. So if uh, you had a submitted question, we're going to send it back to your notes. So if you go in Makana and you look at your notes, the questions are going to pop back up there. Uh, I do want to just, as we're wrapping up, like to take a moment to commend and thank the small village that wakes up every morning, seven days a week to make this show happen. These folks are managing the questions, cutting the show, making sure we look and sound good and keeping us going out to you. We couldn't do it without them. Also, thank you to the panel, without whom the show would not be possible. Uh, We all benefit from the insight that comes up here every day, and uh, we all certainly look a lot better uh, when we have these awesome, smart people to get to, uh, to get to contribute. And finally, thank you to all of the producers submitting questions. The show runs on your questions, and there's no way we could do it without you. Just a reminder, coming up on Office Hours, we've got Business Mondays with Managing Scope Creep, a lab on motion lower thirds, an in-depth look at the Blackmagic camera app, so... Go to officehours.global and sign up for the email so you can get all of the what's going on. And uh, one more thing, if you're interested in becoming part of the panel, right now there is a new panelist meeting immediately following the show. So look out in Discord, hop onto Zoom, and we'll see you there. Let's jump into After Hours. Thank you. Alex Lindsay is very good at finding voices on the internet. If you're interested in how he does it, you should watch Office Hours Global on YouTube.
Thanks, everybody. That was exciting. Good job. Well done. Good job.